to me, the big moments were sort of identifying that this is something that is important enough to my life that I'm willing to do the work. And then the moment where I'd realized that I had done all the work that I need to do, which is sort of a different way of looking at, I'm now ready to do this. Instead of looking at it as like, I'm ready to climb El Cap, it's actually more of, I have done the work that I needed. And therefore, you know, being able to do it like naturally follows. I think that people should just think about what is the thing that's worth it to you, and then what is the work that you need to put into that. That's Alex Honnold, and this is part one of our annual Best of 2018 edition of the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Happy holidays. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast, the place where I do my best to have deep, to have meaningful, long-form conversations, conversations that matter with the world's best and brightest across all categories of health, wellness, diet, fitness, nutrition, basically positive paradigm-breaking culture change. Appreciate you guys for listening, for subscribing to the show, for spreading the word. It's been an amazing year. And as part of the process of preparing for the year to come, I think it's important for all of us to reflect back, to celebrate our victories, to take stock, take inventory of where we were last December, and use that, leverage that as a means of beginning the process of visualizing and preparing and setting intentions and goals for where we would like to be 12 months from now. And it's in that spirit that we started this annual tradition here on the podcast to end each year with a look back at the previous months of the show, to look back in the rearview mirror with this sort of two-parter compilation of clips excerpted from the year's best guess. The idea being to have this kind of refresher course for the avid fans, uh, as well as an anthology or a digest for those who are newer to the podcast. And it's all coming up quick, but first. Hey, everybody. Like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well being, courtesy of a doable, evidence based 12 week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply 
Just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, I gotta say upfront before we even get into this that it is very hard to choose amongst my babies because I love all my guests. Every single one of them has been a gift and it's almost impossible to choose who to put in the best of series and who gets left out. So please know that if one of your favorites was omitted, that I get it. It breaks my heart to leave anybody out of this. Not only did we do our best, I think the next two episodes are the best 
of our annual best ofs to date, and I'm super excited to share it with you. Anyway, these next two shows are are basically a love letter to all of you guys. It's my way of saying thank you, that I recognize you, I appreciate you, I believe in positive change, I believe in you, and I believe in the power we all have to do better, to be better, to live better, to step into our best, most authentic selves, and, and essentially then help others around us to do the same, to live and be better. So with that being said, let's just dive in. Right up top here, we have one of the most remarkable people I have ever met, the free soul of free solo climbing from episode 351, none other than Alex Honnold. Alex is a renowned professional adventure rock climber whose audacious free solo ascents of America's biggest cliffs have made him one of the most masterful and compelling athletes of our generation. Over the course of almost two hours, we covered his boundary-crushing El Cap Free Solo Climb, which is now an amazing documentary, Free Solo. You can learn more about that at freesolofilm.com, as well as his most recent expedition to Antarctica. We discussed his passion for environmental conservation, the benefits of his minimalist lifestyle, and of course, we explored his training routines and mostly vegan diet. But more than anything, this was a conversation that not only examined the how behind Alex's feats, but the why behind his pursuits. Here's Alex. Well, this conversation around fear and death, I mean, this is this comes up. I mean, it's impossible for anybody to have a conversation with you without that. I mean, do you get, no, do you no, get tired I'm, I'm, of like I'm, talking about it? No, I think people I think people should think about that stuff more. Yeah, so I mean, what, when, when was the last time the average person thought about the mortality and, mm-hmm. and really made choices that could lead to death? I mean, my perspective... Other than lifestyle choices, yeah, like per- uh, eating a Twinkie or whatever. <laughs> right, but right, those right. are so far removed that you don't get that immediate like sense of dread. You yeah. Know, that, like, oh my God, I'm so afraid. If I eat this, I'm going to die in 40 years from heart disease. You know, it's like a different... Right. I don't know. Well, I think that, that most of us live our lives in a waking dream and we, we expend a, a tremendous amount of energy trying to pretend we're not going to die or denying that the inevitable. I, I, I think that's such a And such in a certain shame, ways, really. you have a healthier perspective on it because you're so connected with that reality. I was back in Yosemite in the fall and I look up at El Cap and honestly, it doesn't, you know, even having, having climbed without a rope now, it, it still looks so crazy. Yeah, like yeah. what an amazing wall. <laughs> like that's so cool. I mean, do you think like, you know, when I was 15 or whatever, like, do you think back to that young kid? And, and think what would he think of what you well, yeah, I mean, to do? Yeah, 10 or 15 years ago, the first times I looked at El Cap, I thought it looked totally crazy. And now, I mean, it looks a little bit less so, but you still look at it and you're like, that's an intimidating wall. Like right. that is a big, crazy wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, you see people up there and it's like little tiny dots and you're just like, wow, that's really big. Right, it <laughs> so, is I mean, crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, what is what is what do you think is like, behind it like what's driving you what is the what's the motivation is it is it love is it a is it a sense of adventure is it a competitiveness like what's the psychology behind what motivates you to do all this i don't know i mean it's it's a lot of things i guess i mean part of it is definitely trying to see what i can do what i'm capable of I mean, especially with El Cap, it was something that I felt like I was maybe uniquely capable of doing in, in this generation, at least. I mean, I'm sure people will do it in the future more and, you know, might not be that crazy in 20 years. But um, but at this point in time, I was like, if anyone is going to do this, I think it could be me if, if I apply myself to it and if I really care about it. And, you know, being the first to do something like that, I mean, was that that hasn't always been a huge motivator for me for 
various projects. Mm-hmm. But for LCAP, I mean, I did kind of, I did kind of want that. Right. You know, I was like, I mean, you look at that wall and you're just like, I don't know, it's so proud. Yeah. You know, and and I'd spent all my years of climbing looking at it as the ultimate objective, like the the pinnacle of rock climbing. And I was like, that could, you know, I could, I could do that. That could be me. Mm-hmm. Like, and mm-hmm. so then, you know, I sort of felt obligated to try. Right. Yeah. I think there's something almost like a, um, like a childlike innocence about, you know, what you do. It's so primal. It's like, there's a mountain, I'm going to climb it. Like there's that it's thing. It's elemental. Get on top. Yeah. It's very, yeah, it's very basic. Or, yeah. And um, I think to ask someone like yeah. yourself, like, why do you do what you do? It's just like, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, mm-hmm. it's an expression of, of something so deep and, and so innate in my personality and how I'm yeah, I mean, why, why, that, why like, how, I can't give, yeah, exactly. Else. You know, cause it's awesome, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, but I mean, for you, it's, it's a love for somebody else. They're like, that's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. Like I wouldn't go anywhere near yeah. that. That's fair. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how I feel like about singing. You know, if I had to right. go up on stage and sing, like, I'm, I might as well just kill myself. Like it would be a disaster. <laughs> but a lot of people love, you know, music, performance, any of that. And, and that's great. I mean, everybody has something that they're passionate about. Right. So what else scares you then? Well, I don't know. I mean, th- that kind of stuff is probably at the at the core of it. Like you know, public performance. Yeah, being in front of people. Yeah, mm-hmm. of but you people or, give talks all the time. But that's because I've had a lot of practice now. Mm-hmm. Um, but so interestingly, um, I'm supposed to give a TED talk this year mm. um, at like the conference in in April oh, in Vancouver, like the big TED. Wow. Yeah, which I'm that's like, oh, fantastic. Yeah, well, and big scary. opportunity. But yeah, exactly, <laughs> super, exactly. You're yeah. like way scarier exactly. than like climbing out. Like, oh, yeah. so I've sort of written an outline for it, and I've like worked through some ideas and some uh-huh. themes, and um, which is all due basically tomorrow. The end of the month which wow. is tomorrow um and so i'm like oh no but um i think that what i've been kind of struggling with or working on is to make the climbing more applicable to to the layperson to, to any average like person what are the lessons yeah and i think that one of the ideas is, is like what is the thing that is worth putting the work in for you or what is the thing that's most important to you like in my case i'm talking about lcap and my preparation for free soloing lcap and and to me lcap was the thing that was worth the work but basically like what is the thing that's worth it to you and then what is the work that you need to put into that mm-hmm. you know and uh, i'm still fleshing out the ideas but with El cap you know to me the big moments were sort of identifying that this is something that is important enough to my life that i'm willing to do the work and then the moment where i'd realized that i had done all the work that i need to do which is sort of a different way of looking at i'm now ready to do this you know instead of looking at it's like i'm ready to climb El cap it's actually more of i have done the work that i needed mm. and therefore you know being able to do it like naturally follows Mm -hmm. but um i don't know so i mean i think that people should just think about what is the thing that they want to do and then you know what what are the steps to do like what is the work involved and like Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know it's it's very much a work in progress yeah no i like that (laughs) though i mean you know baked into that is 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 uh an appreciation for the hard work and the level to which you know you completely devoted yourself to this pursuit, not just El Cap, but like, you know, just climbing in general in a culture in which it's all about hacks and shortcuts, right? Yeah, that stuff drives me crazy. Yeah, (laughs) I can't stand it, you know, I can't can't stand it. If you really want value out of your life experience, like stop trying to find the shortcut. I know, I know that, yeah. Because when you're 70 and you look back on El Cap, you're probably not gonna, it's, it's the memory of being on the peak 
probably pales in comparison to thinking about all those days of preparation that, you know, that's the meaning of it for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, the memory of being on the peak is, is still pretty, good. I'm still yeah, very yeah, excited yeah. about it, but it is but it, true but, that but it, but it's years and years. It's so meaningful like, because of yeah, everything Because I've spent years that. working right. on it, years thinking about it and you're, yeah, no, I mean, for right. sure, for sure. I mean, that, that idea of, you know, like what's the life hack to mastery? And you're like, oh, the whole, by definition, mastery takes years and years, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's like, you don't, you don't just like life hack it or whatever. Mm -hmm. that, that stuff really annoys me. No. Because, you know, if, if there was an easy way to do it, then everybody would do it. Of like, course. you know, I mean, if it was easy, then it wouldn't be hard. Yeah. But that's, I mean, some things just require time and work and effort and you just. You well, just mastery certainly does. I mean. Proficiency, not necessarily. And it seems like we've we've prioritized, you know, adequacy over <laughs> over like the appreciation for truly, you know, what it takes to be a master of something. Yeah, I mean, that's another one of the ideas that I've been thinking about a lot with regards to a potential TED Talk or something. The idea of mastery and like because of like why is free solo climbing so important to me? And uh, you know, the pursuit of mastery is a big part of that, like feeling right. like you're good at what it you do. It is an example. It is a it is a manifestation yeah. and expression of mastery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, well, so what is that thing you want to master and how much work do you have to put into it? And speaking of free solo, episode 407, a more recent episode, graced us with the amazing filmmaking couple behind that masterpiece documentary, Jimmy Chin and Chai Vazzarelli. If you enjoyed the Alex Honnold episode and my conversations with other adventure athletes like Conrad Anker, Hillary Nelson, Colin O'Brady, then this dynamic duo's conversation is one you're not going to want to miss. Free Solo is this beautiful, cinematic celebration of human possibility, and these are the brilliant minds behind it. So without further ado, here's Chai and Jimmy. You know, that cross-pollination essentially from Chai's talents uh, and where she comes from and her very strong background last, what, 15 years of you know, serious nonfiction documentary work, mm -hmm. uh, combined with, you know, what I've, what I've been doing for 20 years. Uh, and, you know, I think the biggest thing is that there's a lot of trust there. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, uh, you know, I, in some ways our, our, our working relationships on films, uh, on this film, it, it's almost simpler compared to our compared to like being married and having children and uh -huh. all those things because we you know I think it's very easily recognizable like what we each bring to the table on that level and I guess it's 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 similar yeah you know but I mean, it's hard I mean the like it was yeah it was wonderful to bring our children to Yosemite mm -hmm. you know and it was definitely Part of my motivation was keeping everyone together and bringing our children to this wonderful place. But now in this part, right, like you've got both parents on the road and that's hard. Yeah. So it's, there are kind of those very practical considerations that become tough on us as a family. Yeah. Um, but in the work, in the work, it's, it's really, it, it works because Jimmy and I trust each other so much. Like I know he's going to make the right decisions when he's shooting. Uh -huh. He trusts when I'm, I'm asking for something that I'm asking for it for a reason. Um, like, you know, get that shot. Right. Um, and it's really important that we film that. Um, and, it, and it kind of works that way. And like just even on this film, like they're toiling away on the, on the wall with Alex for eight hours, 10 hours. 
and then Alex, you know, Alex sits down, but they're still up there kind of, you know, uh-huh. gathering the ropes and getting down. And, you know, myself and a different team, like a Verite cinematographer, would be there to talk to Alex about life and love and yeah. his dad. And you um, need both. I mean, yeah. Jimmy, you know, on the one hand, like you're the only person who could be doing what you're doing. You have the climbing expertise and the background and the experience, and you have this incredible um, acuity with the camera, your cinematographer's eye. And then Chai, you bring the emotionality and the narrative structure to this to really take these extraordinary visuals and turn them into a a narrative that will connect with people's hearts. Is that fair? I think it's fair, but I think that it's often easy to underestimate Jimmy in that particular respect, Mm -hmm. whereas I think we have a great cheat, so to speak, where Jimmy in in this one brings such an intimate knowledge of this world. And I often feel like just more of an interpreter Uh um, for like his, his instincts and bring some exteriority to it. Yeah. Um, because what I think what also is strong about the film is that it looks at Alex's interior life and tries to build a story while also aspiring to be something that the core respects, mm-hmm. right? Like that there's an authenticity that is 100% Jimmy. Yeah, you, know? you have to serve two masters, right? You, don't, you can't alienate the hardcores, but you also have to make it appealing and interesting and compelling for somebody who knows nothing about this world. Yeah. So it has, to, it has to make both of us happy, which is kind of uh-huh. what that is, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it works that way. I mean, I think she's very accurate about that in the sense that, you know, a lot of the heart and the soul of both Meru and uh, Free Solo are ideas that, you know, I've experienced or seen or feel deeply about because I've been in this world Mm -hmm. and they're the great lessons or the great conflicts, internal conflicts that I have suffered or people around me in my peer group have experienced. You know, those are ideas that are really the inspiration behind the films, you know, the mentorship and the camaraderie and the friendships that... I felt so deeply, uh, you know, that have driven me to make these films. The task, though, is that I've never, it, it's, you're so close to it, it's really hard to translate. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, Chai has been like the, the great interpreter. She has been able to kind of stand outside of it and uh, be able to tell that story in a way that every, people can digest it and that is really powerful because I have not you know I I know it well and so those are the conversations Mm -hmm. you know when Chai and I are sitting there in the edit room or when we're making these films it's you know she's just kind of you know her first strokes at it are usually very good and then and then we start to kind of refine those things uh and then also making sure you know of course it has to also speak to the core like there's no way I'm ever going to put out a film where I can't feel proud walking yeah. into a room full of my peer group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, but I would suspect that from your perspective, Jimmy, you may think you're conveying a certain point because you're so close to it. And Chai can say, yeah, you think you're saying this, but actually I'm not getting it or the average person is not going to understand what you're trying to convey. It's more like that's a wonderful point. It's very important that we achieve this other thing. Uh-huh. We get to that other thing, and then I'm like, okay, 
let's go back to what Jimmy was saying. Right. Um, and see if we can make it work within what we've done. Uh-huh. So you're each polishing each other's stones. Sort yeah. Of. yeah. Yeah. And it's well, really important. It's like this right. concept that was incredibly important in the film. It's a good example about preserving Alex's experience of the climb. Right, like that's actually the most important part of the task for for us was to yeah. make sure that Alex enjoyed and got what he wanted out of this. But that is a very elusive idea for people who don't understand climbing. Right, right, yeah. and I, I mean, you certainly achieved that. Yeah. Um, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. This movie, I mean, you guys have achieved something extraordinary with the work that you have done and I have no doubt will continue to do uh, for people out there that are interested in either narrative or documentary filmmaking and are struggling to figure out their voice or how to get going. What, what can you say to those people? I think that making films is hard. So if you're going to make a film, it should be about something that is incredibly meaningful to you. You know, and that's 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 why you, mm-hmm. you would use your voice. Um, so that that meaning, you know, find that meaning. You know, and it's okay to wait until you find it, or like bumble yeah. along the way and find it later. But it just the, the it should be meaningful. Yeah, I. I mean, I would echo that. I mean, it's it's really about finding. It's a bigger question. It's about finding your purpose and finding what gives you meaning and finding things that you're inspired and passionate about because like I said it, it's very hard to make films but when you find something that gives you that drive and, and purpose you have to be relentless regardless you know yeah. it's a lot easier when you find something that has a lot of meaning behind it Our next clip is from Zach Bush, MD, who is a triple board certified physician and one of the most profound, deep thinkers that I've ever come across when it comes to diet, nutrition, disease prevention, wellness, environmentalism, and soil conservation, among many other subjects. This was an absolutely mind-blowing conversation. We explored new insights into the mechanisms behind human health and longevity, the massive misunderstood impact of industrial farming, chemical pesticides, the pharmaceutical industry, and even uh, errant Western medical practices have had on both human and planetary health. And I think we only scratched the surface when it comes to Zach's depth of expertise. And I got good news because he's coming back in early 2019. But until then, have a listen. One of the reasons I think that glyphosate was not put on the market in 1958 when it was discovered is because the Japanese inventor of that chemical recognized that that was a water-soluble toxin. You do not want to introduce a water-soluble toxin into the environment because you can never get it back, right? In that where if you have a fat-soluble toxin, it'll actually be sequestered by mycelium in the soil. If it gets into a human or another mammal, it'll be sequestered by fat cells so it never hits the brain. It'll be protective. A water-soluble toxin, on the other hand, can't be subtracted out of the ecosystem because everything on planet Earth, including your human body, is water. Mm-hmm. And, so and that means that, sorry to interrupt, but that means that this chemical can pass through that one cell uh, width of yeah. the brain blood barrier as well, right? It's going everywhere. And it's also before it even gets to the human body going everywhere. And so 
The current statistics is that less than one-tenth of one percent of the Roundup used on the planet actually hits a weed. The other 99.99% gets into the soil and into the water system and washes off. And so we are now seeing the runoff from these farms and in the water table itself. So we have fossil aquifers in the United States here that run from Canada all the way down to, historically, Mexico, that is now dried up. We've, we've turned over 1,000 square miles of uh, Texas into desert over the, just the last 20 years from sucking water out of the ground. Mm-hmm. That fossil aquifer is now contaminated with Roundup that's filtered down into this ancient freshwater source for us. And then in the same moment, you've got the Mississippi River, which collects over 80% of all the Roundup in the country. And then it's evaporating the whole time. So it's going into the air that you breathe, and then it goes into the clouds, and then it rains down on us. Recent studies in the air and rainfall in the southern United States is showing 75% of the rain, 75% of the air contaminated with Roundup. So before you even take a bite of That's food, insane. you're being hit with an antibiotic when you breathe. You're getting hit with an antibiotic when you experience rainfall. And so you may be growing organic crops, but they're getting rained on. And so we have now locked this water-soluble toxin into our environment. Fortunately, you know, to give you a little bit of breather here from the bad news, is that there are bacteria and fungi that can eventually digest the glyphosate. The downside is we need to stop spraying it so they can return. Mm-hmm. We're decimating those very bacteria and fungi by the presence of Roundup uh, to the point where they're not digesting it. Current estimates is if we stop spraying Roundup tomorrow, it would take about 50 years before our ecosystem saw a drop in the level of Roundup below our toxic years. levels. And what what is the current, you know, I don't know, market cap isn't the right word, but like it, it's billions of dollars, right? Is there is there anybody outside of the organic farming community that does not use Roundup or people that are even just weeding their own gardens at home and that's, spraying their lawns? That's actually where it started. So before we genetically modified crops to be able to be sprayed directly with Roundup in 1996, that occurred. Um, but before that, it was really the homeowner that was contributing most to our toxin load because uh, in the 1980s, the EPA allowed uh, Monsanto to go direct to consumer with their advertising for this chemical. And so they created those Super Bowl commercials mm-hmm. of a guy walking out of his suburban garage with a dramatic soundtrack and he had two pistol grips on his side. And he came out and, and boldly sprayed down the four dandelions that were in his driveway, which happened to be superfood that kill cancer. But anyway, he sprays these four <laughs> dandelions. He kills the two things. He kills the only yeah. medicine on his property. Uh-huh. And, you know, so suddenly it was, it was by far and away the most effective direct-to-consumer advertising ever because suddenly males in the United States realized it could be manly to weed. Right, they're like shooting guns. They're shooting guns. On their, on they're, their it's, it's easy warfare, you know, whatever it is, instead of having to actually bend over and put on a pair of gloves or whatever it is. And so we started broadcasting this stuff across driveways, sidewalks, patios, into our own you know, garden spaces and everything else. And that, the difference between a homeowner who, who's going to go through a couple gallons and a farmer who will go through tens of thousands of gallons, the farmer is super careful with the usage because their margins are so low. Mm-hmm. The homeowner doesn't care. So they're spraying, spraying it down and they might use a quarter of a gallon of, of glyphosate in an afternoon whereas a whole farm might treat the entire 1,000 acres with that same quarter gallon. Mm. So the smaller the user, in some ways, the more dumping of this chemical they were doing. So by the 1980s, we were drinking Roundup out of our municipal water systems. Getting into our water system. That's unbelievable. Well, let's take a moment and and just kind of, uh, you know, canvas 
what the discussion is around glyphosate, because I think you know it's worth mentioning that as soon as you bring this up, we start to venture or tiptoe into this world of like you know crazy conspiracy theories, and you must be some you know insane hippie person to be bringing this up, and you know don't don't mind him like he's just a wacko, he's a whack job, like yeah. he's a marginal character. You know we know this stuff is safe; it's been around forever, it's been vetted. You know the EPA, they're on it; they know what's healthy for us. If it was dangerous, they would have outlawed it and this has been around for a long time and there's no indication that anybody's getting sick from this so what are you talking about yeah if the conspiracy theorist was right then we'd see one in two people with cancer we'd see one in 30 kids with autism we'd see parkinson's going crazy you know they're literally repeating back if it was toxic we would see literally what we're seeing you know and so the reality is the public health statistics have gotten so grim in the last eight years that nobody can call this a conspiracy theory anymore Right. Um, but it's almost like, yeah, but that's, where's the direct, where's the smoking gun? The smoking right? gun is what's been missing. Mm-hmm. That's what we found in 2012. So in 2012, we found it backwards. Um, I don't think anybody's actually smart enough with the human gray matter that we're given to actually create a paradigm shift prospectively, right? So every great, you know, mind that we look to in past Galileo or, you know, Ben Franklin or anybody, we said, oh, they discovered something or, you know, Edison these just came at moments when the evidence got so overwhelming that it became obvious, right? And so in the same way, in 2012, the evidence was getting so overwhelming that we were onto something in the nutrition world. But we, at the time, I was still thinking cancer, cancer therapy, because my background was in chemotherapy development. And so when I found these molecules in soil that looked similar to the chemotherapy I'd been making, a lot of bells started ringing of like, what is that? Where'd it come from? How is there medicine in the dirt? Like, what, where is that coming from? And within a few weeks of that discovery of those molecules, we found out that bacteria and fungi were making these specific shapes of these carbon molecules. And that really closed the loop for me because there had been some papers coming out in the mid-2000s in the cancer world that were starting to say that the bacteria in your gut were predicting which cancers you would get. If you're missing these bacteria, you would get prostate cancer. If you had these bacteria, you would get breast cancer. That was so radically bizarre and out there for our current model, even to this day, as to how cancer worked. But now you fast forward eight, ten years, and now there's tens of thousands of articles that are showing that genomically, Mm -hmm. the bacterial genome is way more Mm -hmm. important in determining cancer than the human genome. And, and so this reality was hitting. And so in 2012, when we discovered these chemicals that look a little like chemotherapy that are made by bacteria and fungi in the soil, it suddenly closed the loop of, oh my gosh, what if the bacteria in our gut is doing the same thing? What if the bacteria and the fungi are actually our best source of medicine mm-hmm. for everything? Mm-hmm. And so that's the direction we were going. But as soon as we put this into Petri dishes with cancer cells and beyond, we suddenly realized, no, 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 there's something way deeper happening with these this information stream coming out of bacteria and fungi. And it was my chief science officer, Dr. John Gilday, he's a PhD in genetics and cell biology, and he... Uh, was the first to realize that we had put our finger on the glyphosate toxicity issue, is that this communication network from the bacteria and fungi was actually supporting the protein structure in our gut lining. And so it turns out that the gut is held together, these trillions of cells that make up that cellophane layer, by tight junctions. Mm -hmm. These are Velcro-like proteins that hold one microscopic cell to the next to create this coherent carpet of two tennis courts. And he had recognized before this, and a number of other labs had started to publish, that glyphosate seemed to increase the permeability of this membrane. And nobody was really sure why yet. Um, But we suddenly realized that if this bacterial communication network was in there, 
we we couldn't injure the the membrane. We, it became bulletproof to the glyphosate injury. And so in that journey, we started to really study glyphosate and its relationship to the human cells, because like you said, Monsanto's been swearing up and down that there is no harm to the human body because the shikimate pathway only exists in bacteria and fungi. Well, that may be true regarding that enzyme target, but the classic thing with any drug is it always has off-target effects, mm -hmm. right? So that's why drugs have side effects, is they don't actually go and do exactly what your doctor says it's going to go do. It's going to hit a bunch of other receptors and do other things. The side effects of glyphosate that are outside of the shikimate pathway is direct injury to the protein structure that holds your gut lining together. This would be bad news if that was it, but it turns out that every macromembrane in your body, the blood vessels that uh, fuel your entire body with oxygen and nutrients are held together with the same tight junctions. The blood-brain barrier that protects your peripheral nervous system and your brain, same tight junctions. The kidney tubules that are held together to, to detox your body, same tight junctions. And so what's happened as we've introduced a chemical that's directly toxic to this, this Velcro-like protein is we turn into leaky sieves on the front end, gut leak and nasal sinus leak. And so every time we breathe, every time we eat, we're starting to leak and our immune system gets overwhelmed. And then the blood vessels that are supposed to deliver either uh, an immune response from peripheral or get nutrients to some distant space is also leaking. And so we're getting permeability of the blood mm -hmm. vessels. Then you get to the blood-brain barrier. This is supposed to be the holy of holies. A peripheral nerve or the brain is supposed to be protected against everything in your blood because even glucose, which is the main fuel for your brain, should not get into the brain in an unregulated fashion. It will damage the nerves. And so the holy of holies of the, of the central and peripheral nervous system is being destroyed. And so if that's true, if glyphosate was really damaging that, then we should see a massive explosion in neurologic injury to children and adults starting in about 1996. That's exactly when we see this steep increase happening in autism, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, neurodegenerative conditions like MS, autoimmune diseases, and all the rest. That just blows my mind. So if you've been on this podcast adventure with me for a little while at this point, then you know well that addiction, alcoholism, recovery, these are big recurring themes of the program, subjects that are very close to my heart as somebody whose life has been spared by sobriety, which is why I'm so excited to share this next clip from my friend, Amy Dresner. Amy is a recovering drug addict and all around quote unquote fuck up in her words. She's a writer, she's an author, and she wrote this amazing book called My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. Uh, I dig a good addiction yarn and Amy's chronicling of her descent into the throes of addiction and ultimately redemption is pretty much one for the ages. And this is definitely one of my favorite conversations of the year. Amy is incredible. She's hilarious. And, and what she had to share, I think, was really profound, especially for those that still suffer uh, or have loved ones that are currently suffering. So without further ado, here's Amy. I had to lose everything so I could be grateful and build it back on my own so I could have self-esteem. I think that when you're privileged and you're given everything, it cripples you in a weird way. I never did anything because I didn't have to and then I felt like I couldn't and then I didn't. And it was this horrible cycle. And so... You had to be dismantled yeah. and dragged through the mud for years in yeah. order to wake up and... And it's like, and it, I mean, Sweeping the streets, I mean, 
created a sense of unity and compassion for other people that I'd never had before. It was like, you know, at growing up in Beverly Hills and all this stuff was like, well, that'll never happen to me. And it's like, I'm here to tell you, like, or getting arrested for felony, like all the thing, or shooting up in your neck, all of it, psych wards, like you, anything can happen to you. You are not immune. Mm. So if there's someone else and they've gone through that, try have compassion. That could be you. I'm here to tell you that absolutely could be you. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Under the right or wrong circumstances with the right mix and wrong, just. Right. I mean that all those things that I, I in, and I was just like, wow, I'm not immune. And it really humbled me and connected me with other people in a way that I hadn't been before. Mm -hmm. You know, when I have people on that are in recovery, like I always wanna hear what they have to say to somebody who might be listening who is struggling, whether it's with relationships, sex, or substances, or some other behavior that is causing them pain. As somebody who's been there and found mm. their way out, like how do you speak to that person? Um, I would say, be, first of all, be gentle with yourself. You know, um, drop the shame because that will just continue the use. Like you're doing the best you can with the tools that you have. Um, I would say to be honest with other people and get help and go get a therapist or go to AA or go to SLAW or whatever, get into a support group because it's so important, you know, when we're in a behavior that's, uh, that we, that feels pathological, we isolate and that just makes it so much worse. And for me, a huge part of the healing has been the fellowship and my friends and feeling connected and reaching out. Um, I would say don't give up no matter how many times you slip. Like if you're alive, you've still got a chance um, that you can get through this, that you're not a bad person, bad person even if you've done bad things. Um, I mean, I think that's amazing advice. Yeah, I think the I, hardest part for people um, is, okay. the, is that first step. Like, yeah. well, how do I reach out? Or like, what exactly is, what, what yeah. is the thing that I actually need to do first? And the other thing is don't wait till you feel like you're ready. You'll wait forever. Like mm. I, if I waited till I was ready to write a book, or if I like I've been waiting to feel like I'm ready and want to go to the gym, and that's been a year and a half. I know. <laughs> Don't judge yeah. me, but it's like you know, you you take action, and that changes the feeling. Mood follows action. That took me forever to figure out. And there's a line in the book, you know, that my dad told me, and it didn't, it took me 20 years to figure it out. He said, he said, stability doesn't create discipline. Discipline creates stability. Mm. I was waiting to feel okay before I could do these things, but it was doing these things that made me feel okay. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, tell your feelings to shut the fuck up, your head to shut the fuck up, and you take the action and it will change things, you know? And it's like, you can get better. If I can get sober, anyone can get sober. Sorry, like, come on. That's where it's gnarly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and one of the things you've written a lot about is is the importance of structure in your life. Like having oh God, a schedule. Yeah. Well, and, now, I mean, I work from home. I, you know, I, I, I work from home. Uh, I have a, a three day a week editing job. I, you know, work for the fit and it's hard. It's really hard. Um, I have to force myself, you know, to like get out and do things like, mm -hmm. um, I guess the other thing too, it's like, you can change, you can change. 
I really thought forever I was broken and I was stuck with that person who I was. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, I'm not that person today. I'm a completely different person. And it's like, I never thought that I could be the person who shows up and is inspiring to people and, you know, sweeps <laughs> the floor, not the streets, but you know what I mean? Like it's- Yeah, know. and when you're in that cycle, and you're surrounded by people who are telling you you're a piece of shit and you're never going to change. Yeah, that's you believe yeah. that you're never going to change. Of course, yeah. Fuck what people never tell see you. Your yeah. way out of it. Yeah, fuck what people tell you. You know, you can do it. And also, the other thing too is like, you know, if you have an urge to use or drink or whatever or text that guy that's bad for you or whatever, it's like give yourself twenty minutes, take a bath call someone, watch an episode of Ozark, jack off, whatever it is, like do something and buy yourself 20 minutes, call someone, take a drive, take a walk. The, because the urge passes whether you pick up or not. That's really, it took me a long time to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but if you don't ever sort of wait through that feeling, you don't realize that you can get through it. It feels overwhelming and then the urge comes, you're like, I gotta do it, I gotta do it. You know? Yeah, and you feel like you're gonna die if you, if you don't, don't do indulge it. that impulse right, and right. you don't understand that it's it's so true. Right. Like it's but if, it will pass. Yeah, and, it, and it's, if you could just just get through that and realize and go, oh, you realize that the feeling doesn't control you, it doesn't, it won't kill you, you don't have to obey it. And that's where that freedom comes from. Mm. You know, that you can, you're like, oh, I, I can change. Yeah. And it's slow, it's a slow process as you know. Yeah. Takes a while to slow briety. I know, right? I hate that. <laughs> I didn't know all the annoying <laughs> slogans. But that you can rewire your brain slowly over time, you know, through action. You really can, mm-hmm. and you can you can be happy. You can have a good life, and you don't have to be a you know a prisoner to that crap. How you guys doing out there? Are you doing good? Don't worry. Got a ton more great stuff coming up in a couple few. But first. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. 
I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. This next clip is from my friend, Paul DeGelder. It's from episode 350. Paul is a former Royal Australian Navy clearance diver, which is essentially Australia's version of the Navy SEALs. And it's the story of the shark attack that nearly killed him, but ultimately actually saved his life. It's a death-defying tale of survival, perseverance, positivity, grit, hope, rebirth, and the extraordinary breadth of human possibility. Paul is hands down one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. This conversation left me breathless and it inspired me beyond measure. So here's Paul recounting the attack that didn't take his life, but instead gave him a new one. Um, it was early in the morning we were doing a counterterrorism exercise. The, the goal was to uh, test this new equipment that the R&D department of the military had created. It was unmanned video and sonar mm-hmm. designed to detect uh, attack swimmers and attack divers coming in to put bombs on our ships and equipment. So they set it up on the PR in Sydney Harbour uh, along the, alongside the Navy base. And it's, it's very central to everything. You can see the Harbour Bridge. It's not that far away. The Opera House that everyone knows about. You can mm-hmm. see all of that. Uh, so... I've got the new guy in the water. He's pretending to be an attack swimmer. Uh, All the R&D guys and my chief are up on the bow of one of the warships watching and this equipment's on the pier trying to detect him. And he's swimming around for about half an hour and I I thought I'd do him a good turn and I said, jump out, mate, I'll take over for you. you I rolled over the edge of the little black Zodiac in a black wetsuit and a pair of fins and I was doing what we call finning. I was on my back on the surface just kicking my legs and it was a three-tier thing we were going to do surface swimming to see if it could detect us we were going to do scuba to see if it could detect us and then pure oxygen rebreathers with no bubbles to see if it could detect that Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're still in the first phase you know this is 40 minutes into testing and on the very first day and uh, i'm in the water on the surface, on and my back. this is back. like, this is simple routine shit. Yeah, this is nothing. This, this is like yeah. the boringest day ever. Right. And I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning for this shit. Uh, so it's end of February, oh, it's February 11th. So the start of February, which is the end of summer for us, it's probably the hottest season of the year. Um, but it was 
kind of chilly. It was overcast. The water's murky in Sydney Harbour. So combining all of that, you can't see through the water at mm-hmm. all. And I'm on one of my first runs uh, towards one of the warships that I'm you know, pretending to attack. And I look over my left shoulder to make sure that I'm going in the right direction. And before I can turn back, I just get this massive whack in my leg. Like someone's hit me with a, a baseball bat. And it didn't really hurt. It was just surprising more than anything else and i turned around to see what it was thinking the guys in the boat maybe got too close i I couldn't hear because i had water in my ears and i turn around and my brain couldn't comprehend what i was seeing because i'd never seen a shark's head up close in real life like that before and it took me a few seconds and i i thought holy fuck it it's a fucking shark and all of these things ran through my head and I thought, okay, 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 I've seen, I've seen the Crocodile Hunter, I've seen Discovery Channel, I'll jab it in the eyeball. Right. And so I tried- to punch it in the face, right? Yeah, is that yeah, a right. myth or is that like no, a real No, that's thing? like, that people have said it works. Uh-huh. Um, I, I just thought eyeball because that's the softest spot. So I tried, but I couldn't move my arm for some reason. And I looked down and I could see all the teeth half embedded into my thigh. I could see the lips pulled back, all the pink gums and the teeth going all the way up my leg over my wrist, which was by my side. So it had my hand in its mouth, which is why I couldn't move it. And it's still at this point, it didn't hurt. I could see the teeth embedded in my hand. I just thought, okay, left hand. So I reached for the eyeball, but it had me by the back of the leg and I, I was inches away from that eyeball, just desperately trying to get my finger in it, but I couldn't reach. So I tried to grab it by the nose and push it off, sort of lever it off that way. But all that did was push the teeth of the lower jaw deeper into my hamstring. Mm-hmm. So I stopped that and I cocked back to give it a, a, a whack in the nose. And just as I was coming in, it started to shake me. And this all encompassing pain rattled me to my core and all the strength went out of my punch. And I yelled and I think that's when the guys in the safety boat saw what was going on. Mm-hmm. And when it's shaking you, the lower jaw detaches, right? And it goes side to side. So it yeah. becomes like this sawing effect. On, yeah, on your- it's, it's movable. <sighs> it's unbelievable. So, the, yeah, it just basically was sawing the flesh out of my body uh-huh. while I'm in agony, terrified, drowning. This is my worst nightmare. I was terrified of sharks. Uh, really, the only two things I was scared of was sharks and public speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and now this is your life. I know, it's weird as fuck. <laughs> That's the way the universe works it out, man. Yeah. You know? Your, your greatest fears can actually uh-huh. become your greatest strengths. And that, I think at the end, that's really the theme of your, of your whole story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You got to embrace that shit mm-hmm. because you don't know, you don't, you're not fully aware of what you can accomplish if you're letting, especially if you're letting fear hold you back. Mm-hmm. I mean, after you've survived what you've survived for, I would imagine your relationship with life and death is 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 different. Like, wh- you know, what does fear look like for you? Well, I, I already accepted death. When I was under the water for those 10 seconds, drowning in total agony, I came to a realization that I was going to die. My brain was telling me, okay, you're going to die right now. You're not going home today. This is it. And so I accepted it already. And I just thought everything sped up in my brain. And I was thinking a million miles a minute. And I just thought, well, I've lived 10 lives in these 31 years. If it's my time to die, then I'm okay with that. And so I let go. And a calm came over me. And then the shark removed my hand, removed my hamstring. And because of my wetsuit, I was positively buoyant. And I popped to the surface. 
and I looked around and the, the tail of the shark splashed water in my face and I saw my safety boat and I thought, oh shit, I'm not dead. I better get out of here. So I started swimming back to the boat. And so I, I, I already accepted death and I realized that it's not, it's nothing to be afraid of. Death. And so how does that color your day-to-day life? Well, I, I don't have to hold on to the mortal coil like everyone else does because I know that death is not scary. You know what's scary? Not living not doing everything that you possibly can to live the best life you have. Mm -hmm. Because trust me, when you come to the end of your days, the only thing you're gonna have is your regrets. And if you don't have any of those, it's a sweet home run. Mm -hmm. You got nothing to worry about. So when you go and you give these talks, what is the, you know, what's the message that you're, you're trying to leave people with? It really depends on what the client asks me to talk about, because I mm -hmm. talk, to everyone from primary school kids, you know, six, seven, eight years old, surprisingly mm -hmm. enough, all the way through high school, all the way through college, all through military groups or big business. You know, I've got IBM coming up, uh, Microsoft, um, big investment corporations, 12 bankers, two, 12 CEOs in a room and just me. Right, and so we talk about whatever they need to focus on. So there's, there's a lot of common themes. There's um, embracing change, because a lot of them go through uh, takeovers and mm -hmm. they're getting melded together with other companies and it's a change of culture and it's a change of personnel and everyone always fights against change because it makes them uncomfortable and they don't wanna do something different when they're comfortable doing it this way. So talking to them about embracing change and the opportunity that comes out of changing with the situation, overcoming adversity, obviously, um, working the, the, the team network, you know, being able to focus on looking after each other um, and doing a better job that way. So it's not just helping people on a personal level. You know, it helps people throughout the whole process of living, being happy, the secrets of being happy. So you would, you would probably believe, I would normally say you wouldn't believe, you would probably believe how many unhappy people there are. Well, there's no question about it. And I've, I meet them every time I finish my presentation. Sometimes I break down in my arms uh, just because they're so grateful, because you've given them a little nugget to, to make them believe that they can still be happy. And what and, is the message that you're delivering on happiness? Well, that's, it's all about what you value and what is going to improve your life. They have to be on common ground. What we were talking about earlier, doing things for other people. I've never had a, a greater sense of happiness than doing things for other people that can't pay me back. Um, it, it, it's mostly weaved throughout the story. The things that have really broken my heart and the things that have made me elated and the value that I found in things that I really didn't think I would. And that giving with no expectation of receiving is mm -hmm. a big one. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's something as simple as going to the blood bank, it doesn't cost you anything, it costs a little bit of time, go in, throw some blood down a tube, because I went through 150 donations mm -hmm. and I could have all the doctors in the world, I could have the best surgeons, but without that blood from those 150 amazing people, I would not be here today. So it doesn't take a grand gesture, it just, you know, a pat on the back, a well done, a handshake, take someone out for a coffee and be a kind ear. If it's someone that maybe doesn't have anyone to turn to at work because they're not really well liked, maybe just 
put up with it and and go and have a chat with them and make them happy because you might change that person's whole day or how, whole outlook on life. And that only comes back to you. It, it makes you feel good. That's where happiness is found in service. It's so true. And it's, it's such counter-programming from what we're kind of told growing up because we're kind of set in motion on this on this path of like trying to get as much as we can out of everything mm-hmm. and we approach situations with a perspective of like how am i going to gain from this what's in this for me like how am i going to come out of this better than i was before uh and that doesn't really lead to happiness no, you know no. it does not and when you approach a situation an encounter whatever it may be from a perspective of how can i give how can i contribute to this then you're on you're on a different you know that's that's a different plane of consciousness and it's not my default but when i remember and i practice that it's exactly you know it's what i mean practice. it's a practice it's mm-hmm. a practice it's like it's not just like oh well that guy just that's his instinct and that's how he does it like no you have like how remind do you, how yourself do you, to do that how do you get good at anything how do you learn to ride a bike or learn to read or play a sport or do your job you do it over and over and over until you get really good at it it's the same with happiness it's the same with gratefulness it's the same with positivity and motivation you have to keep practicing it and the more you do it the easier it gets This next clip is from Myrna Valerio, who's one of the most interesting, compelling, joyful, amazing, and inspiring examples of self-empowerment and self-acceptance through running. Uh, What's interesting about her is that she doesn't cut the image of what you conjure when you think of a runner, because she's big, she's 250 pounds, but make no mistake, she is definitely a runner with an impressive slew of ultramarathons to her name. I first came across her story by way of a mini documentary produced by REI called The Motivator that went viral. Uh, I was hooked on that, determined to track her down, share her powerful story with you, and we did that in episode 340. Uh, She's also the author of a book called A Beautiful Work in Progress, and in this clip she talks about her pain, her pain of being challenged because of her size and being a runner. You know, is she glorifying obesity uh, and changing people's perception and shifting paradigms? Uh, This conversation is definitely one of my favorite of the year. It's an exchange about the need to redefine how we think about and define athleticism, the spirit of sport and fitness in general. So without further ado, please enjoy this clip from my friend, Myrna. What do you think people most misunderstand about what you're about and what you're trying to speak to. You know, probably one of the the most common comments that I get is, uh, or that I hear about or that I read about when I'm, you know, being spoken about in third person. Um, when you get those notifications, yeah, <laughs> that you should really turn off. Or like, don't tag me in things. I don't want to. I don't want to read that. Um, is that the thing that people misunderstand is they they really do think I am. There are two things that I, I'm really trying to glorify obesity, and there there's so many issues with that word anyway. Um, that I'm uh, because that word dehumanizes fat people, and it makes it a very sort of clinical thing when there's a lot of shame in that, and in the medical arena um, when it comes to fat people, and uh, so there's that that I'm that I'm glorifying obesity just by being. That's why being in, like being alive, <laughs> mm-hmm. because people would rather not see me. 
Um, and that's, then, that's, yeah, that's got to be painful. It is. It's painful. Um, but I know it's there. I know it's there. And I'm, I'm still going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, because as as you and I talked about, like it has definitely hit a nerve with people um, in a positive way that they are now they now feel entitled to go outside or to start a new physical fitness routine or to join a gym or to do whatever it is that they feel like they need to do um, to uh, improve what they need to improve about their bodies uh, or what they want to improve about their bodies uh, or change. And um, so that's that. And then the second thing is that people really do think that I'm sitting on the couch um, and eating You're just a bag of potato the whole chips. Thing. Yeah, you know. And I'm not gonna lie, I love uh-huh. potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> jalapeno kettle chips um but you know i'm i'm not doing that and so like I, you know and i do know that people see me as an anomaly and and like, you know they can't wrap their minds around that but those are the two big things i'm glorifying obesity and that i cannot in reality be doing all the things that i say that i that i do right well when you're when you're in the business of of trying to reframe these paradigms, it's so contrary to people's worldviews that mm-hmm. they have to dismiss it somehow, mm-hmm. right? So, oh, she must not be doing this. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with me being vegan. Like, mm-hmm. oh, he, he's not really vegan. When no one's looking, he's eating this. Or like, because <laughs> whatever I do, <laughs> like if what I'm doing doesn't fit their worldview, there has to be a way to dismiss it some, mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. And that comes in the form of some offhanded, you know, remark that makes them feel better, but ultimately isn't rooted in any fact. Right. Yeah, um, and I would love to see people actually backing up their statements. Oh, so yeah, how well, am I, how am I glorifying that. obesity? Like, what what is what does it actually mean to glorify obesity? Like, what does that mean? Do you even know what you're saying? Or I get a lot of, you are going to ruin your knees. So that's what that's like. That's a really really good example of you know people just saying things because that's what they've always heard. Right. That is what their norm is even though it is not rooted in any truth or in any facts and uh okay so well tell me about tell me about how running ruins my knees tell, tell me about that uh and i'm not afraid to have that conversation um you know that's kind of what i do in my job you know I, I i deal with um cultural identity in my job and i'm uh my job is to have difficult conversations with people and to push right, people on the cultural yeah. diversity aspect of what you do and so yeah so uh, so where did you hear that from did you do you have is there a scholarly article that you have about this particular thing about how am I ruining my so knees? You, you, get, you get it. You did. You roll your sleeves up and get engaged in these conversations. Yeah, online. I love it because yeah. it's just you know like it. Because I really want to know where people are coming from. Like and and if I can convince another one more person that you can't just say things because that's what you've always heard, um, without any real factual information. Um, then you can't just be saying these things because it doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, so yeah, so I I kind of see it. That doesn't my job, but like oh, it's something that I I think I do well. I think I pull things out of people and 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 try. I really try to bring people to a new understanding of things. And and if that is what I'm doing by just showing myself in public, and um, I think it forces people to confront their own, you know, ideologies about body image or, you know, or, or aesthetics. So what is the message that you want women to hear from you? Um, you can still be a good mom <laughs> if you take care of yourself. In fact, um, 
in my own personal experience, uh, the more I took care of myself, the healthier my family was, um, the better sleep everyone got, um, and the better our family is in general. Um, Because if mommy's sick, everybody's sick. Uh, If mommy's tired, everybody's tired. Um, And so, yeah, and, and, and it's not just if, if you're a parent. You don't have to be a parent uh, to, to heed this message. Um, you know, perhaps a few words of wisdom that you could impart to, to somebody who can identify with you physically, who's mm-hmm. listening, who just feels scared or feels like, mm-hmm. well, I see Myrna out there doing it, but I just, I don't know how she does that. Like somebody who is in a situation where they don't feel healthy or they don't feel empowered in their own body, but they want to make a difference, but they just mm-hmm. can't. They don't know where to start. Number one, the utmost important thing is practicing self-love. And for a lot of people that is going to take you out of your comfort zone uh, because you probably don't know how to do it. (laughs) Um, There are lots of resources and whatnot, but uh, just just looking at yourself and saying, I love you and um, I am strong, I am powerful, I am able. I'm capable. Um, Those things, like having a mantra, um, you can even use somebody else's mantra (laughs) Um, and repeating those things to yourself. What are your mantras? I have so many. Um, (laughs) um, I really love this mantra by um, Dr. Christiane Northrup. Um, I love myself unconditionally right now. And, uh, And, you know, sometimes you just have to go through the motions of saying it eventually you will start to believe it. Um, But there is a lot of power in saying things out loud. Um, Again, even if you don't initially believe it, you will start to believe it. Language has so much power. Um, So get yourself a mantra. Um, Take somebody else's. Say it to yourself. Um, Whenever you are feeling doubtful, when you're feeling happy, when you're feeling powerful, just say it to yourself over and over again. Um, and I think that's, uh, for a lot of people, that's it's an easy step. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to you know, really do anything differently. You're just, you're just stating that you love yourself. And then figure out ways to express that self-love, whether it's um, taking a walk or writing in a journal or doing morning pages. It's something I used to do all mm-hmm. the time. Oh yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> the artist way, man. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I, I recommend it constantly yeah. to people. Yes, I you know um, I don't do morning pages anymore, but it, when I did it, it changed my life. Super powerful. Uh, yeah, um, you know whatever is you gotta find find ways um, or find things that make you happy um, that aren't hard to do, and just incorporate those things into your daily routine, um, and then it becomes a routine. Uh, becomes a habit and then you can add on to that um, and then uh, and find something that you might be interested in that maybe you, you think you can't do or maybe someone has told you you won't be able to do that and god damn it do it anyway just do it you have to this requires a huge step out of your comfort zone but you are not going to learn anything or progress if you don't step out of your comfort zone so if you continue to stay in your own bubble you're not going to be able to mm-hmm. do something different. Yeah, at some know? point you have to take an action, Yeah, right? You can read a zillion self-help mm-hmm. books and intellectualize it all, but ultimately you ultimately have to like you have to put something it. into yeah. into motion, right? Absolutely. 
Um, and then find people, you know, find a tribe. Um, even if you're an introvert, find a tribe, find people who are your cheerleaders, people who will do stuff with you, people who will um, tell you the truth, <laughs> people that love you unconditionally because now you love yourself unconditionally. You have to find a tribe that replicates that. Um, and uh, yeah, do you. You know, maybe it's not running. Maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not writing a book. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, swimming in a lake. I mean, whatever it is, you know, do it and find somebody that'll do it with you. Um, or e even if not, even if you don't find uh, a buddy, do it on your own. There's so much power in doing things individually. Um, yeah, and the, all of these things, you know, I keep saying that these things um, have to be a habit, but it's true. Um, if you don't have a habit of self-love, if you don't have a, have a habit of stepping out of your comfort zone, um, you won't experience growth. So, um, so the first yeah. step is creating that habit. Creating a habit. And, and the yeah. creation of the habit begins with the first act. Yes, absolutely. And, and the last thing I'll say is that nothing happens overnight. Um, so know that uh, whatever you are changing, whatever you're doing, whatever your goal is, it is going to be a journey. Um, there will be moments of, of just of joy and amazement, and there will be moments of awfulness and where you just have to sort of be in the trenches uh, and do the work, but that has uh, tremendous implications for success. A regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, James Clear is a writer, blogger, author, and speaker who specializes in evidence-based self-improvement. He is the author of the massively best-selling book, Atomic Habits, which is this comprehensive primer on what actually works when it comes to behavior change. I found this book and our conversation, which was episode 401, uh, very powerful, potentially game-changing. And my hope is that this clip will help you reframe how you contemplate and act upon your ambitions. It's an explanation of why true behavior change is actually identity change. Here's James. There are a couple ways to think about it, but I would say just quick definition. A habit is a behavior that has been repeated enough times to be performed more or less automatically. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can do it pretty much on autopilot. But another way to think about it, and I think this is a useful way to define a habit, is that as you go through life, you face different problems. And some of those problems are big and some of them are small, like you need to tie your shoes. And whenever you face a problem, your brain starts looking for solutions to that. And as you come across solutions to the recurring problems in life, you start to automate those. And so every morning you wake up and you put your shoes on and you got this little problem that you need to solve. And pretty soon after you tie your shoes a hundred times or 500 times or a thousand times, you can do it pretty much without thinking. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way of thinking about habits is that they're kind of these like automatic solutions we fall into for whatever the recurring problems are we face. Right. Behavior that becomes habituated. Yeah. And you know, like there, the interesting thing about this is you don't necessarily have to have the same habit to solve a recurring problem. Like if you come home from work each day and you feel stressed and exhausted, one person might uh, play video games for an hour and that's a way to resolve that problem. So they get in the habit of doing it and they just walk over to the controller. They don't even think about it. Another person might go for a run for 20 minutes or meditate for 10 minutes. Third person might smoke a cigarette 
And all of those are just solutions to that problem that you're facing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, I think, is another powerful lesson is that your original habit is not necessarily the optimal one. And once you realize that, then it kind of becomes your responsibility to become a little more aware of what those habits are and then think about, can you shape them or design them? Right. And so to kind of deconstruct what a habit is, how to change it, what's a good habit, what's a bad habit, how to flow from bad to good, it demands, I would imagine, and you're the expert here, uh, you know, a real analysis of like how our brains function. Mm. You have to look at psychology, you have to look at neurology, you have to look at the science and understand the human mechanism in its holistic form. I think that's true. And you bring up a really interesting point and one that I wanted to uh, answer or think about in the book. So in the book, I lay out this four-stage model for how habits work. And the reason the second stage is there It's all about craving and prediction. In other words, like you come across a cue or some kind of context and then you interpret it in a certain way. And that's where we're getting to this point that you're just making, which is that the habit only comes after. The habit is the behavior Mm -hmm. that follows your prediction or your interpretation of how you should act in a given context. And, um, you know, for one person, they might see their couch as the place where they read for an hour each night. And so their interpretation of that context is I should open up a book for another person. They might see the couch as the place where they turn on Netflix for an hour and eat a bowl of ice cream. And so that's a different interpretation of the same physical cue. And, uh, so in that way, habits kind of follow They're this lagging measure of how you predict you should respond to the different contexts in your life. Yeah. I mean, it's really, uh, it's interesting that the, the more, this is like a subject matter that's so important because the habits that comprise how we behave and navigate our day are determinative of our entire experience as a human being. Not only do they determine whether we're gonna be, you know, quote unquote, successful or failures, um, they literally dictate every aspect of our experience as humans. So. On some level, like there is no subject more important mm. than really understanding how behaviors work. I'm interested in what got you interested in this subject matter to yeah. begin with. Um, I find that most people who you know walk that path of becoming obsessed with a certain subject matter or idea tend to be people who are trying to solve that equation for themselves. So is that part of the influence? In a sense, every article I've written and this book is just a reminder to myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely had an internal desire for that. Uh, And then there have been a variety of areas in my life where I've had to implement that. Athletics, um, photography, uh, writing, and building a business, of course. And all of those have been kind of like test labs for me to, to put the ideas into practice. Right, but why zero in on this? On habits? Yeah, Well, I think that a little bit of it comes back to what you just mentioned a few minutes ago about how important habits are. Uh, I didn't know this at first. So I was a baseball player for many years. And as any athlete can tell you, there are all kinds of habits that you have at practice, rituals, things like that. And I was benefiting from that. Um, You know, my strength coach would tell me to do something or my coaches would hold me accountable to certain habits. And that would help pull the rest of my life in line. Mm -hmm. You know, I always did better in school when I had sports as well. Uh, it It would like give me something to anchor my day around. And so... I knew that it was working, but I didn't have a language for it. Um, And so it was only until maybe five years after my career ended and I finished graduate school and I started like looking into this stuff a little bit more that I started to come across the science of habit formation and behavior change and developed a language for it and started to write about it. 
So I kind of implicitly knew it was important, mm-hmm. but didn't discover that uh, the actual way to write about it until later. Now, the second thing here, though, is that I, as I dug into the topic more, I started to like unearth these layers and realize, wow, this is actually even more important than I thought. And this comes back to the point that you made a few minutes ago, which is that habits are one of the phrases I'd like to use is that pretty much any of the results in your life are a lagging measure of your habits, right? So your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your clutter is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. Like the outcomes are just the, the manifestation of the behaviors that preceded them. Right. Um, so you kind of get what you repeat in that way. Well, that makes sense. People understand that that's important. So that's one reason why habits are, are crucial, but there's another thing that habits do that is even more central, even more important. And that is that your habits are the way that you embody a particular identity. So every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of an organized person, someone who's clean. Every time you go to the gym, you embody the identity of someone who is fit. Every time you sit down to write a sentence or a page, uh, you embody the identity of someone who's a writer. And so in that sense, habits are like every action you take is kind of like a vote for the type of person that you believe that Mm -hmm. you are. And as you take these actions, you build up evidence of a particular identity. And pretty soon, your beliefs have something to like root themselves in. It's like, man, I, you know, I showed up at the gym for four days a week for the last three months. I guess like I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And that, I think, is the true reason why habits are so important. Uh, once I realized how beliefs and behaviors are connected, that it's like this two-way street, um, then I've started to think, all right, maybe this is really something. Not only does it deliver those external results, the clean room or the you know bigger bank account, but also the internal results of shaping your sense of self-image and what you believe. Right. This is why I think identity is such a crucial issue with habits, is that true behavior change is really identity change. Um, because you're, you're not really looking to go from the type of person who doesn't run to the type of person who can run a 5K. That's fine. That's good. It's the outcome. But the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. Mm-hmm. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. And once you identify as that type of person, in a sense, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe that you are. Right. You know? It's like one thing to say, I want this. It's something different to say, I am this. This next clip is from plant-based dietitian Juliana Hever and former NASA scientist turned nutrition scientist Ray Cronice. These two combine their wonder twin powers to collaborate on a number of projects that include personalized nutrition consulting and co-authoring of both medical journal articles as well as their recently released book, Plant-Based Nutrition, the Idiot's Guide series. In this clip, excerpted from episode 345, Juliana and Ray discuss the benefits of eating more fruits and vegetables, less food in general, hardly controversial, and finding a community of like-minded individuals to stay on point. Here's Juliana and Ray. The book and this conversation, I think, is a perfect launch pad at this time of year for people who are finally in that spot and want to take that leap. So I thought it would be good and instructive to try to help guide people um, towards that first step. And because it is, you know, look, it's it's called The Idiot's Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, right? By its very nature, the work that you guys are doing is 
introductory for a mainstream audience. So let's start at square one. Like somebody's listening to this, they're like, okay, tell me what to do. Where do I go? What, what's my first step? What do I get rid of? What do I eat? What do I focus on? What do I not have to worry about? What's the first step? The first step is to keep it simple. You know, we really just, there's an infinite variety of combinations of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices. And you can meet any kind of taste preference. You can meet any kind of, you know, culinary desires from making, from experimenting with those foods, those basic foods. So the first step is to go, okay, I'm just going to do this, you know, commit to a, a certain amount of time just to try it and see what happens. And now, I mean, my gosh, from the time that we made this transition. It's completely different now with the internet is exploding with recipes. There is information everywhere. There are books everywhere, your books included. There's so many great sources and there's so many great things on the market. So, you know, I like to look at it as learning a new language. You know, first you've got to learn the letters, you know, if there's a different alphabet. And so, Ooh, there's 10 different varieties of rice at the market now. And there's five different types of, you know, colored lentils that I could try. So those are like the letters and the words. And you start kind of putting them together. Look for recipes, do a search, find books that sound good, that appeal to you. Look online and find recipes that sound delicious to you and then flip through them. And if you happen to love meatloaf, try a nut loaf or a lentil loaf. If you happen to love chili, try, find a great bean chili. Just anything that speaks to you, start marking those off. And I like you know, you just slowly build up your repertoire and you start building those words and those those sentences. And suddenly you become fluent in this because you can go to the market and go, oh, I, I'm going to make that, you know, that burrito. And I just need these three ingredients or sort of like you just have it on the top of your head, but it's a learning curve and it just takes practice and experimentation. But I also recommend people think of it in a positive way. You know, it's not like, oh my gosh, I can't have, I can't have that. I can't have this. I can have, instead think about all the new things you get to try. And you're literally recreating the plate. You know, we all grew up with that meat in the center of the plate and we're used to thinking about food in a certain context, but there's so much more. And if you look just even, you know, culturally speaking, there's so many delicious cuisines that are based on these plant foods, you know, um, you know, Ethiopian food and Mexican food and just traditional diets that have all these really delicious types of uh, cuisine that you may not have really spent time with. This is the time to do that, you know, go to different types of uh, countries and look at their traditional diet and start experimenting, you know, look at how many times, three times a day in Asia, rice is consumed, you know, that is like the staple or potatoes in Peru, or we're talking about potatoes or corn, but find the simple ingredients, find, yes. start with simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't need to make some know, but gourmet as human meal. Beings, we want to overcomplicate it. Right. Yeah. Like where's that? But I need, what kind of spirulina do I need? Yeah. yeah. If it doesn't have an expiration date on it, buy it food that naturally that you can tell that it's not healthy to eat like fruit fruits and produce they don't have expiration dates on them you can tell that it's rotten oh but they and but they, they expire faster than the processed foods on the <laughs> shelves but, but ironically but you know that so what my point is they don't need a label fruits and vegetables don't need labels and you know you can buy things without I mean, labels. yeah i mean it's really it is so simple if you think about it like what we no one will argue that we need to eat more fruits and vegetables if you make that your number one New Year's resolution to eat half your diet from fruits and vegetables, you're gonna do better. Eat less frequently and eat more fruits and vegetables. Yeah, that's the two takeaways. Two things, yeah, two so things simple. done. If you just eat less frequently and eat more fruits and vegetables, you'll do well if you don't soak them in sugar, oil, and salt. So when we're talking about eating fruits and vegetables, let's be clear, we're talking about whole food. We're not talking about potato chips and french fries. Those don't count. Veggie, chips, 
veggie whatever stuff in the bag with the stuff that you're talking about from the, the evil companies that you guys were discussing, right? <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about the wow. middle of the store All stuff, right? right? But it's true. But, the, but the, <laughs> if you just go with a vegan or plant-based label, we have to say it today. We didn't have to say it a decade ago because those things didn't exist. But today, everything can say vegan can put the vegan. So I'm saying if you go to and eat, you mean you're foods, just saying that just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's healthy. Right. Exactly. It just, you need to recognize it in nature. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting in your approach, like I wanted to ask, like, you know, in your experience of working with all these people and all the success stories, you know, people screw up, they, they mess up, they make mistakes, they slip backwards. Um, you know, what are some of the common things that you see uh, that are tripping people up? followed by you know the next question which is what are the strategies to avoid that but even before that like we were talking before the podcast and, and ray you had said something really interesting that you actually build in this like failure mechanism into <laughs> into the approach you want them to fail because that experience of failing will confront them with the kind of circumstances that led to the misstep which creates greater self-knowledge for long-term future success yeah, just like fatigue and muscles and, and working out to, to the failure point causes that strength to happen, I believe that the main obstacle we have to success are the social pressures to eating. You know, today it's a lot more socially acceptable to say I didn't eat for 24 days than it was two years ago. Only marginally. Marginally. <laughs> but it, but and we're more, in LA. But, but, more, yeah, but more people do it. Today. What do they say in Alabama? <laughs> they think he's crazy. No. Yeah. I'm fixing Cray to Ray. shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but, they, uh, but today it's more acceptable to say I'm, I eat a plant-based diet than well, and everywhere years you, ago. Everywhere sure. you say it. Right? Now we've been all over. We've been all over the country and beyond now. And like, n no matter where you go, no, even in Huntsville, Alabama, where he lives, people go, when you say you're plant-based or vegan, they're like, oh, like they know so, oh, they I know, know so-and-so, or I was vegan. Mm -hmm. Everyone has heard that term or know, is more familiar with it. And, and so what I was going to say with this is that the, the social pressure to eat is huge. Yeah, and that's one of the pitfalls, and that's also one of the solutions, and one of the things people should focus on if they're going in there. Find your people, find support. If even if it's not, if your family doesn't agree with you, or your friends, you don't have a friend that's on board with you, find it online. Go to a conference. Find people that are like-minded because support is really important. How are you guys doing so far? Good stuff, right? You know what else is good? Okay, you guys, up next is three-time RRP guest and favorite, Dr. Joel Kahn. Previously appearing on episodes 44 and 128, and most recently 349, that conversation, the most recent one, was focused on diet wars and the popular debate of plant-based versus ketogenic diets. Dr. Kahn is an interprovincial cardiologist, a clinical professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine, founder of the Kahn Center for Cardiac Longevity in Michigan, and a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Michigan's prestigious Iniflex program, which is a six-year undergraduate slash graduate program that developed doctors fresh out of high school. He's authored hundreds of articles on heart disease. He's a frequent lecturer on heart disease and its prevention. He's performed thousands of cardiac procedures, and he's the owner of Greenspace Cafe in Ferndale and Royal Oak, Michigan. In addition, Dr. Khan is the author of five books, including The Whole Heart Solution and his newest offering, The Plant-Based Solution. And with that, I give you Dr. Joel Kahn. 
The ketogenic diet is very popular right now. The idea that uh, really strictly eliminating carbs, of all, and we always have to be careful in the definition. Carbs are, you know, plants have, food has usually carbs, protein, and fat in almost every food until you refine it. A coconut has all those, and an olive has all those. Once you refine it, you may end up with only fat. Um, so all foods have the three macronutrients. I don't think there's any exception to that. Maybe different percentages. Um, so a low-carb diet, of course, many of them continue to eat a decent amount of greens in their diet, but they're eliminating all mm-hmm. the whites and, uh, and they're hypervigilant about it. The big difference in the ketogenic diet are you doing high-fat, low-carb, low-protein, which we can talk about, and with a plant-based approach may actually have some uh, benefit in science, or are you doing a low-carb, um, high-fat, and high-protein diet, which probably ages you quicker than any other diet on the planet, and that isn't always parsed out in their conversation. So um, the scary skeleton in the ketogenic diet closet is you'll lose weight. You may have some boost in energy for a period of time. You may be increasing your mortality risk. Um, and they just don't talk about that with great regularity. So uh, it's a it's a difficult diet, and you know on the road it's easier to be plant based than it is to eat a strict ketogenic diet right now. Of you know a high fat options, you're going to have to carry around your own food. Uh, but the gravest concern is is it a healthy pattern? Is there any natural population that even slightly approaches it and has done well long term? Kind of a bullet shot at the plant-based movement. Show me a society that's been plant-based for centuries and has mm-hmm. thrived. You can talk about Eskimos and the Maasai who live to age 30 or 40. Well, that's not kind of the example we're talking about. Show a Okinawa-type population that was 90% plus plant-based and thrived. Great. We have our, our example that approximates the way we eat. Uh, they have great difficulty with that. In fact, the scientific data is it's the converse, that they are at risk shortening their lifespan. If it's an animal-based, low-carb diet, particularly if they're emphasizing foods that they feel are high in protein, which are typically going to be meats of mm-hmm. a variety of kinds, no matter whether it's grass-fed or not, it's the basic constitution of animal muscle that can age you excessively, and the science is well known. So a couple observations on that. Uh, first, with respect to the the degree of difficulty of maintaining a ketogenic diet, it's an interesting um, thing to talk about because you're right. Like to actually do a ketogenic diet properly requires an incredible amount of like a forethought and planning and discipline. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not easy to really dial that in and make it work um, compared to a plant based diet. And yet, I feel like the plant based diet gets unduly criticized for being restrictive and too difficult and something that people are just never going to be able to maintain long term, despite the fact that both of us have done that. But people are very quick to jump on the ketogenic bandwagon and try it with enthusiasm without that same concern being applied. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, You know, just a couple examples. There's uh, Joe Rogan had a surgeon on... um, Sean Baker, and I don't know Sean Baker very well. We go at each other a little bit on Twitter. Um, and he said very, you know, c- casually even, he's an MD. I've done, and the ultimate example of these diets is there's a whole group of people eating nothing but meat three meals a day and literally nothing but meat. Mm-hmm. And for reasons I don't completely oh, understand. He's the carnivore guy, right? Yeah, they, and he's meat. one of many. I mean, he's not the only one that shows up there. They can claim short term some pretty impressive pictures of their abs and weight and 
Some of them have some heart CT data. Of course, there's nothing published in the literature. I want to come back to that. But, you know, Dr. Baker said, well, I didn't even bother to check my labs. Joe Rogan said, you've been doing this for a year? He goes, no, I didn't check my labs. Well, I have patients that do that, and they get their labs checked, not under my advice. And I have one that I'm going to write up maybe on the airplane flight back to Detroit later uh, this evening. Um, his cholesterol went from 250, I've never seen this, 250 to 750. During the two months, he did a meat-only diet, trying to approximate what he was hearing on these, you know, rogue, not Rogan kind of podcasts. Um, and it's insanity and it's, it's like religious fervor and, uh, follow the leader without thoughtfulness. Um, the only medical condition that has any data, everybody can verify this, pubmed.com, putting ketogenic diet, refractory epilepsy in children and to mm -hmm. some degree adults yeah. have a number, I mean, several dozen published studies on a impact if standard drugs like Dilantin don't work. And in fact, before Dilantin, ketogenic diet was a reasonable choice for uh, kids with epilepsy. As soon as drugs came out, it kind of faded off and has come back for that use. Daniel Amen, very famous local mm -hmm. uh, psychiatrist uh, and a friend, has a grandson that had refractory seizures. Rather sadly and ironically, ketogenic diet was very beneficial. You go beyond that, you're just you're you're absent data. So another startup that's hot and it's worth talking about because your listeners will hear this is Verta Health, V I R T A, backed by Stephen Finney, MD. I don't know much about him. He appeared in. Dr. Malhotra's documentary about visiting the home of Ansel Keys, one of the most distorted and uh, misleading documentaries ever done uh, called uh, The P.O.P. Diet, P-I-O-P-P-I. -P -P -I. Don't read it. Don't watch it. It's a waste of time, money, and uh, honesty. Uh, but Verta Health claims with a ketogenic diet that you can reverse your type 2 diabetes with a high frequency, and they've got a lot of backing, and they've got an app, and they've got a, you know, a coaching system. So they have published a study in an, a journal that is so obscure and so non-reputable, but it is a journal of which there's a proliferation of scientific journals that are open, and you can either pay to publish an article or get access. But it's a small study of six months duration, actually, the originally 10 weeks duration, non-randomized, no control group. In the scientific world, this is about as low as it goes. And yes, with the dietary plan they advocated, very high dropout rate in the group studied. They showed some drop in measures of diabetic control towards the better with their ketogenic diet coaching system. And on that, I speak to like brilliant people and they say, well, the debate's over. Verta Health has shown that ketogenic diet can solve multiple health problems. Well, it's so overblown. And in fact, what's missing is the six, seven studies that suggest to get to the point. Big studies, hundreds of thousands of people. These are association studies. Group of people ate a certain way, questionnaires, food questionnaires, once food questionnaires, several times during a number of years. Follow these people up. Harvard School of Public Health, Tufts School of Nutrition, very prominent places. Uh, a dramatic rise in long-term mortality by people whose food um, uh, pattern, it can be called the low-carb, high-fat diet, a rise in death rate. If you've had a heart attack and you fill out questionnaires at the Harvard School of Public Health and they follow you long-term and your diet can be described as a low-carb, high-fat diet, you're much more likely to die and follow up than people that describe diets that are closer to high-carb, hopefully complex plant choices, though these aren't vegans, uh, you know, more like a Mediterranean-style diet. So that's the untold story for anybody listening and that's falling for this uh, optimization of performance and metabolism and 
uh, control of cardiovascular risk, the data needs to be addressed about death rate. And until there's a study that resolves that issue and, and says that's wrong, six, seven different studies in different parts of the world, I could not in any good conscience advise somebody do a, a animal-based low-carb ketogenic pattern, particularly if it's high in protein. Protein activates aging pathways. Protein activates biochemical pathways that right here in the City of the Angels have been found from yeast to mice to humans to cause accelerated aging and aging in every aspect of our body. And it is animal protein rich in an amino acid called leucine is the main trigger. And you can't get around it. Grass-fed beef, free-range chicken, and uh, line-caught fish all have tremendously more leucine than the amino acid structure of plants. They have it, but they don't have nearly the same amount. Our next clip is from Dotsie Bausch, a seven-time U.S. national champion, former world record holder, and two-time Pan American gold medal winner in track cycling who earned a silver in team pursuit at the 2012 London Olympics. Not only was she a longtime vegetarian at that time, now vegan, she was almost 40 years old when she won that medal, the oldest ever in her discipline and one of the oldest athletes to ever compete in an Olympic Games. So obviously, Dotsie's accomplishments are extraordinary, but more remarkable to me is the hard-fought road that this extraordinary athlete trudged to achieve these heights because Dotsie's biggest victory is the battle that she won to resurrect her life from the depths of an eating disorder that was so severe, it very nearly claimed her life. So in this clip, she talks about being vegan, sharing the truth about the misinformation about dairy, disease, and animal agriculture, plus a little bit of advice for people struggling with an eating disorder. It's such a joy to sit down at every meal and and you're aware that you are choosing conscience over ease, like whatever is just there. Mm -hmm. And it is so uplifting and so fulfilling and such a empowering feeling. Like I feel so strong every time I'm slightly challenged, let's say at like a business dinner and we're like at Ruth Chris, you know, like whatever that happens once a freaking year, who cares? But people really don't understand not only protein, but they they don't understand iron. They don't understand B12. They don't even understand what B12 is, that it's a bacteria and, you know, mm-hmm. you, where you can get it from. They think animals make B12. So there's, there's just a lot of misconceptions out there about the different nutrients that they think that you need from the myth that we've been told and lied to about our whole lives um, that you can only get that from animal flesh. Right. Well, it's amazing as somebody who who not so long ago didn't even know <laughs> these worlds existed <laughs> that you're having PSAs airing during the Olympics and you've created this um, compassionate champs movement. Like, tell mm-hmm. me what that's all about. Um, so I'm learning more and more every day. Uh, but when I started Compassion Champs, it was uh, it was really it was kind of more out of a desire to meld together compassion and strength. I felt like there was you know no, nobody really um, that, that that was having a real conversation about being able to be uh, caring and compassionate and and loving and empathetic, but also strong and fierce and badass and you know those those mm-hmm. two just weren't coming together um as as a as a group of people so that that's that's where it was uh kind of uh, born out of um I'm learning more and more as I um am traversing this movement and 
reading more research and understanding more from being a part of the Game Changers film, which we can talk about. Yeah, I want to talk about um, that. That, you know, people, and, and, and just from my own experience, uh, sadly and, and really disappointing to me is by and large, people don't care about the animals. They just don't. They just, they don't care about the suffering. They don't want to know about it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want you to show them. They don't definitely don't want you to talk about it. And they really don't want you to talk about it when, when you're all eating. Um, but people do care about their health and they do care about their performance, not just athlete, uh, you know, athletic performance. People just care about their general performance and being better in their life, right? A lot of the people that you've had on here. Um, so the conversation that I'm having is, is changing a bit more. Uh, I think it's, I'm almost feeling more like a undercover animal activist <laughs> because it's at the core of what I care about the most. Uh, it's the least effective way to change people's minds. You have this competitive nature. You have retired from cycling. Uh, where are you gonna channel this this uh, this energy into this movement, yes? Or how oh my does God, this, yeah. how do, you know, is that? There's there's no question in, in, in my mind that uh, I will do this uh, till the day I die. It's, it, it, it fills every piece of my bursting heart with so much joy and, 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 and need and fulfillment. And that this is, this is revealing the secrets behind this is, is very similar to back in the day with tobacco. I, I feel such a, um, such an inherent deep need to share truth with people. Like if, if it's not, if they're not, if they're not being told the truth, somebody has to tell them the truth. Somebody has to, you know, uncover. And, and if I can use the Olympian thing or the Olympics thing that I, you know, did and fought really hard for, um, cause you're right. People, people are interested in what an, you know, Olympian mm -hmm. eats or what an Olympian does. I mean, it's, you know, that's part of this you know, PSA with the, with the seven Olympians, it's like, nobody's going, oh God, stupid Olympians, put them in the corner. You know, people just kind of are inherently like go team. Um, and so that platform uh, will, will, will hopefully, hopefully allow us to, to reveal and uncover these untruths that, mm -hmm. that people have been, uh, been told their whole lives from animal agriculture all the way to all the different diseases that the seven top diseases that we're dying from in this country, people are just consuming incredible amounts of dairy while they're fighting prostate cancer, mm -hmm. you know, incredible amounts of dairy while they're fighting ovarian cancer. It's insane. And so it's, 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 it's the only thing um, besides my, relationship with my husband that I care the most about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's everything to me. Well, it's beautiful and it's exciting times. You know, yeah. I think the awareness is getting out there and there is a, there is a, <clears throat> you know, a growing interest and re receptivity right. to these ideas that I, that I think is only gonna build. And, and your role in all of that is, uh, is prominent and growing. So it's awesome to see. Um, one final thing, if you'll indulge me. <laughs> Do you have to go? <laughs> yeah. I gotta um, beat the traffic. <laughs> no, so uh, I, I think it would be great to kind of end this with leaving a, a few thoughts for 
somebody who's listening to this, who perhaps is suffering from an eating disorder mm-hmm. or is stuck in the cycle of, of you know, a, a pattern that they can't see themselves through. So mm-hmm. if there, is there a lifeline that you could throw to that person yeah. or, or something they could think about or do um, that could perhaps be helpful? Well, there's a couple of things. I think that when you're deep into the disorder, you definitely don't feel like there's ever any way out. Um, and that's especially true with eating disorders because you have to continue to eat, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just be like, okay, no more no more drugs, no more alcohol. Um, I felt so isolated by that and just letting them know that there truly is a way out once an anorexic, not always an anorexic. It's, it's, it's not the same as it, as, it, as it might be or how many alcoholics look at it and, and for their own recovery. Um, there, there is freedom on the other side. There really is a pathway, whichever pathway you choose to have freedom from it. So many eating disorder sufferers that I met, that's the one thing that they just don't, really believe is true. And it is, there really is freedom. And I think the other thing is that most most eating disorder sufferers are fairly type A and they, most that I've met want to contribute to society. I mean, they, they have a kind of a yearning, kind of a desire. Um, if you let this disease run its course, and you die from it, you're not gonna be able to do anything. You're not gonna be able to have an impact on the world and you're not gonna be able to do anything for the greater good. And you're definitely not gonna be able to do anything healthfully for the greater good while you're sick. So allow that to be your bright guiding and shining light out of this. That was um, a big part of it for, for, for me is, is recognizing that I can't do anything if I'm dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so let that come to the top of your heart and let that guide you. Um, there is a, there is a way out, and you you can't do anything for the world if you're dead. Yeah, beautifully put. A national magazine award-winning journalist, Alex Hutchinson is a former runner for the Canadian national team, turned writer, writer on all things athletic performance. He is the author of one of my favorite books of the year, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. It's an incredible read that blends cutting edge science with incredible storytelling, kind of in the spirit of Malcolm Gladwell, who actually penned the foreword to suggest the seemingly physical barriers we encounter when tackling a challenge are set as much by the brain as by the body. So even if you're not an athlete, this conversation, which was episode 359, will, I think, leave you rethinking your own limits so that you may reach higher, push further, and ultimately become better in whatever discipline you are devoted to mastering. So without further ado, here's Alex. In a way, the most powerful ways we have of changing those unconscious things may be through conscious strategies. So here's another example of, of something that kind of blew my mind when this experiment happened. Um, this was a guy named Samuel Marcora at, at, at the University of Kent in England. He did a study with subliminal or un- unconscious images. So he had cyclists pedaling to exhaustion in a room and on, on, this, on the wall in front of them, he was flashing 
smiling faces or frowning faces. But he was doing it, it was about 16 milliseconds per per image. So that's like a a tenth the length of a blink. You you don't, you're totally unaware that there's- You're not even consciously aware, you don't even actually see it. You're not consciously aware that you've seen it. The cyclists didn't know there were images. They they thought there was just a black cross on the wall. I didn't get that part when I was reading it. I knew it was quick, but I didn't realize it wasn't registering. Yeah, no, afterwards, the debrief afterwards, like, you know, what was on the wall, nothing. They, They had no idea that there were even pictures on the wall. But this, so so this kind of gets rid of the placebo problem because when you do these brain experiments, you want to find out how the brain is living. It's it's almost impossible to disentangle the question of expectation and you know self belief when you know you're getting some sort of intervention that's supposed to help. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they all they thought just thought they had a couple of rides to exhaustion, but they were something like twelve percent faster when smiling faces had been flashed instead of frowning faces. So this is this is a good example of changing the unconscious in a way that's not really replicable outside the lab. You, you know, you're not going to have, well, we hope we're not going to have subliminal images on the wall, but it, it points the direction or points an arrow towards ways you can change, you know, you can smile and that can, mm-hmm. that can achieve some of the same ideas of, of creating this sense of ease in your brain that affects how your brain is interpreting the signals from the rest of your body. And 12%, I mean, that's significant. Yeah, so, and, and you know, one interesting, one sort of methodological thing that's worth pointing out is that a lot of lab studies use time to exhaustion tests where they say cycle at a certain power until you can't anymore. And the reason, one of the reasons they like those is it, it's, it takes out the, the role of pacing. So it's, it's more replicable, but it produces really big, the, the, the difference is if, if you do something that improves performance, the difference that you'll see is about 10 times, 10 to 15 times bigger in a time to exhaustion test than a time trial. Mm-hmm. So when you see 12% in a time to exhaustion test, that means probably a little less than 1% in a race, mm-hmm. which is still massive when you think of- Well, uh, the highest levels, yeah. that's determinative. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's winner versus, you know, off the podium. Right. I mean, it's also, you know, for a lot of people, it could be, you know, BQ versus, uh, no, you know, Boston qualifier versus no Boston yeah, qualifier. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Personal best versus not personal best. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. So, you 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 break this down. You kind of evaluate the various um, aspects of performance limitation. You know by chapter, and you have pain, you have muscle, you have oxygen, heat, thirst, and fuel. Right. So we're kind of talking about pain a little bit. So maybe we can dig into that a little bit deeper. You know, one of the things that I thought was really cool in your exploration of that was, you know, uh, the obvious question is like, do some people have a higher pain threshold? Like what is pain? Do people experience pain differently? What would happen if we could remove pain? And there's that amazing experiment that was done with fentanyl where they're like, all right, we'll give them fentanyl. They won't feel anything, but then they had no ability to gauge their own pace. And they ended up not being able to perform because they couldn't like sort of evaluate their output. Yeah, that, that, so this was a really interesting series of experiments. Uh, again, like you said, with fentanyl. So the neat thing about fentanyl is it doesn't block the signals traveling from your brain to your muscles. So you can cycle like normal, but it blocks the signals from your muscles to your brain. And and uh, what the what the researchers said is, you know, you give these guys fentanyl and you ask them to cycle a five k time trial. They just feel great for a couple k. They're like they're pedaling as hard mm-hmm. as they can and they're feeling no pain. And they're on pace for a great time. And about halfway is when things start to crater. They start to regress to their 
wh- you know, what their normal pace would be. And then they just keep getting worse and worse and they get so slow by the end that they end up cycling about the same time. They just, they can't pace themselves because they don't have that feedback that tells them how close they are to their, their muscular limits. And so without that, they, they actually hit muscular limits and their legs, the, the, it was pretty funny listening to the descriptions uh, from the scientists saying, you know, these guys, they, they, they literally could not walk that, you know, they'd finish, they'd be on the bikes and they'd, they'd try and help these guys off the bike. And they would just, the first one would like collapse on the floor. Uh-huh. And after that, like, okay, we basically have to carry these guys over to the chair over there to, to, uh, you know, let them sit down because their legs have, have totally maxed out. Right. Yeah. Which, which, you know, your brain will prevent you from doing that under normal circumstances. Right. So there's these outlier examples that you kind of document in the book and reference where, you know, somebody does die because they've pushed themselves past that point, whether it's a free diver or there's that, um, you know, high school uh, football player who dies of heat exhaustion after practice and, you know, the various expedition mountaineer people. Um, and we kind of, you know, create a big story around these people. But what, like Noakes says, is like, what's more interesting is that there aren't that many cases. Like, it, it, it really doesn't happen that often. These are outliers. Yeah. And you know, that when you start talking about the brain's role and limits and how do we get around them, you know, the first and the, you know, a very good question is, well, maybe those lessons, you know, those limits are there for a reason and are, are, is it dangerous to remove the limits? And ultimately maybe yes, but like you said, it, it almost, you know, we're so far from our limits that it's, it's very, very hard to push to a point. Like there, no matter if I, if I headed out the door and just started sprinting and said, I'm going to run myself unconscious, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to do it. Like I would, I would get too tired before I could run myself unconscious. Uh, and so. Uh, yeah. Like everybody at the Olympics would be dying, you know, <laughs> well, you know yeah. because they're, they're all doing is <laughs> everything they possibly can to exert themselves to the absolute max. And yeah, that's one of Tim Noakes' yeah. fav- favorite, like at presentations, he'll put up a, 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 fa- a picture from 1996 where, where there was the winner of the marathon was South African. And it'll be him and the second place finisher from South Korea jogging around the track just after the marathon finished. And I'll say, look, look at that guy. Look at the silver medalist. He, he just finished three seconds behind the Olympic gold medalist. Uh, you know, nobody is more motivated than if you enter the Olympic stadium three seconds short of, you know, immortality. He, he was trying as hard as he could. But you notice he's not dead. Like, right. so clearly he and like can, kind of jogging around the track. Like yeah. He, he finished and he's yeah. like, Hey, look he at me. I'm still, still moving his legs. Like, so something, you know, his legs were clearly keep capable of moving. And this, so the, the sort of other way of putting it is like, man, if you, if you unleashed a bunch of, you know, lions at mile 20 of a, a big city marathon, you'd see that everyone can still run. <laughs> they, 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 they can still sprint. And so what's holding them back is not pure muscular limits. Okay, next up is none other than high-performance psychologist, three-time RRP guest, host of the Finding Mastery podcast, my good friend, Dr. Michael Gervais. This is a guy who works with the elite of the elite, the world's most prolific Olympic professional and extreme athletes, uh, as well as high-level military, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, and Fortune 100 CEOs. He's one of my very favorite people. And in this clip, excerpted from episode 366, Michael shares some insights on how he helps his elite clientele achieve peak performance, as well as some really great thoughts on the illusion, the quote unquote illusion of achieving balance in life. So I've been asking this question to people lately, and I don't know if it's a fair question, and I'd like, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Love to win or hate to lose. 
And if there was space to choose a third option, would you choose a third option? And, or would you just say, oh yeah, it's this one out of those two? I would choose a third option. Uh, for me, it's never about winning or not losing. It's just a function of whether I lived up to what I believe to be my potential. Like, did I do my best? Did I put everything into uh, trying to achieve a certain result? And then, so that's, that's why I, thought, I think it's not a fair question. Mm -hmm. And that being said is the process to better understand what is possible for anybody, for oneself or for somebody else is difficult. Like the, that takes discernment. That takes deep thinking to think about like, and this, I think this might be one of the most loving thing we can do for another human is to think deeply about what is possible have a conversation with that person, calibrate that conversation, nod our heads to it. Once we get the fabric and the texture of that, that thought aligned and then commit to, to helping, supporting and challenging that person through. And if we're left alone to do it, it's, it's really hard. That's why I, don't, I haven't seen anyone that does it alone, right? But back to the thought, hate to lose, uh, hate to lose love to win. Almost 95% of people that I ask that question to, they, whether they think that they are on the right path or not, no, 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 let me not say it that way. That sounds almost crude. 95% are saying hate to lose. And then given a little bit more space. Is that true, really? That, yeah. Mm. Yes, but because, but that, that what spurred me on that is your thought, which is um, I had to come from pain. So the, the pain of losing, which if we map it on the brain, there's no loss center of the brain. There's grief. There's like, you know, there's, there's no, re the redundancies in the brain are minimized because it's this amazing superpower computer that we don't even know really how it works. But the thought that there's a center for losing a Super Bowl <laughs> or uh -huh. losing a, 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 an ultra event, there's no center in the brain for that. It is mapped over grief. Right. So most people, grief is so hard for people. And then when they, so that when they go put their but on the line and go for it in a competitive environment or a vulnerable environment, and they come up short, it feels like grief and that's hard. And so hating to feel grief is the response. That's how I decode that thought. Like an avoidant strategy. Yeah, like I hate it so much, I'll do whatever it takes to relieve myself from it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that that's a beautiful way to do you know, the process. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. So. When you sit down with, you know, uh, somebody that you're working with, like how do you begin to to figure this out and find a different through line to connect with that person, to perhaps provide a foundation for a healthier motivation? Well, we try to get clear. The first part is that not first part, but just value the discovery process. Now, let's let's just nod our head that. The initial part, are, you're asking me like when I'm doing my craft, is that right? right. Like as a sports psychologist or performance yeah, psychologist. Yeah. So the initial, so the way I've structured it is that we spend eight hours together. That's a long day. Mm -hmm. By the end of the day, we're exhausted. We're, we're, we both are tired because we're working relentlessly towards insight. And then at the end of those eight hours, if we are so fortunate to have some insight about what makes this, the person that I'm working with, who are they and what makes them work, if you will? What are they driven by and driven toward? And then if we can get a, 
a handful of insights together, then we can set up and design a way to train one's mind and organize one's life for optimizing. Right. Okay. So that deep, deep work is really like, who are you? Mm -hmm. What are you driven by? What are you driven toward? And then what do you imagine is possible? And when you're when you're doing that like probing process, I mean, part of that I would imagine has to do with finding a way in. Like, how can I? Like, what are the what's the what are the levers here that I can play with to motivate this person to you know unleash you know perhaps potential that's hidden within them? And I would imagine you're going to come across some levers that would work, but are unhealthy. Like, oh, this guy, you know, I don't know, you know, he hates his dad. So I I can play with that and I could get him to, you know, really, you know, um, I could perhaps get him to a a new level in his, whatever his expertise is, but that's ultimately not a sustainable methodology, right? I, I love it. You know, okay, so one of the thoughts is, there's an assumption that I'm making is that you hold all of your insights. You you are the container of wisdom as well. So you, there's nothing I'm gonna say that is going to um, provide wisdom. Like it's already inside you. We just need to figure it out. Everything you need is already inside you is the basic assumption. And you said like to help motivate people. I don't think so. I don't think that that's, I'm not in the right business to help motivate people because the folks that I spend time with are highly driven like the half percenters in the world driven. And so I think that part of the process is to create more space for the fire to burn more brightly, mm-hmm. right? And then how do you do that? Well, each thought, this is a hypothesis, right? Thoughts lead to thought patterns. Thought patterns lead to thought habits. Once they become habits or habitual, they move below the surface for, what's the word I'm looking for? Like. Um, Efficiency, right, <laughs> sorry, okay. yeah. So they, they, there's just like physiological patterns, right? So from thoughts to thought patterns to habits, and then once they're a habit, they're below surface. So part of it is reminding them of the habits that they've already built. They've already had great success, mm-hmm. so every human has. They've already figured out how to get out of jams. You know, people have done. So let's use what's already below the surface and above the surface to figure it out. Now, if we reverse engineer that, each thought either creates space or tension. I'm gonna oversimplify it, right? But if that, just with that thought alone, if you can become more aware of your thoughts and then is this particular thought that you're having right now, Rich, because you're having thoughts, I'm having thoughts, and we're having a conversation. And the better this conversation goes is a direct relationship to the amount of thoughts that are not present, mm-hmm. right? Right, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so every thought that we have is either creating constriction or expansion. And I, I learned that from Judson Brewer, who's a beautiful mind in, um, in the contemplative mindfulness research space. And it's like, yes, that's it, that's exactly it. And so that, that simple little insight I think really is how the process works. Let's talk about balance. Mm-hmm. Can we do that? The mythical ridge line of balance. Yeah. What's your what's your uh, what's your perspective on the conversation that swirls around the primacy or irrelevance of balance in the context of living authentically and performing at your potential? <laughs> I think balance is so overrated. You know, this concept, like like the mythical ridge line that one day I'll have balance. 
I don't know anyone that has balance. Mm -hmm. I don't have balance. And so I think it's way overrated. And the thought that you're supposed to have balance or that I'm supposed to have balance created incredible stress for me. A lot and, of self-judgment. Yeah. So I say, forget about it. That's what I say. I say, forget about this idea of balance and work on being present. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what balance conjures up is like, I've got the right balance in my life between work, between family life, between hobbies, between whatever. I don't know anyone that has that. I really don't. And so I think the way to inoculate that thought is to one, just kind of square it up and say, is that really what I want? For me, that's not what I want. What I want is I want to be fully immersed in wherever I am with this incredible passion that feels right to me, like an inner fire that's alive in the moment. And you know how I know that that's what I want or one of the things I want is because when I'm tired, so when I'm fatigued or when I'm fearful, it doesn't come out. And finally, last but not least, we're gonna close the house down today with none other than plant-based nutrition science and lifestyle medicine power couple, Dean and Ann Ornish. Together, they have co-authored a brand new book entitled Undo It. It hits bookstores everywhere January 8th. You can pre-order it now, it's great. And this clip was excerpted from episode 410, which was just last week. And in it, we discuss the importance of love, the importance of community, uh, and the importance of why you should want longevity, the desire to live longer uh, and to live better. So with that, I give you Dean and Ann Ornish. What is the, the meaning, the sense of purpose that's driving you to get up every day? And I just think that's so core because again, it's not something outside of ourselves. It's not your doctor or your spouse telling you, you should do this. This is the good thing to, you know, this would be good for your health. Um, that only works for so long. Yeah. It really has to come from the inside and we have to um, identify with what that is for us personally. And then we need to kind of re-up with that and amplify that throughout our days with every choice that we make. Yeah, let me just build on that real quickly because Earlier, we were talking about how I, I, I could take all the meaning out of everything when I was so depressed. But later, I learned we can actually put meaning into our lives. We can imbue our choices with meaning. And one way is by choosing not to eat certain foods, for example. I think that's why all religions, all spiritual paths, almost all of them have dietary guidelines. And they're often in conflict with each other. One religion, you can eat this, but not mm -hmm. that, or certain days of the week, or certain times of day, or certain months of the year, whatever. Is God confused? I don't know. But whatever intrinsic benefit there is in making diet and lifestyle changes, just the act of choosing not to eat something that you otherwise could do, or the act of saying, I'm going to be in a monogamous relationship or whatever. Is that deprivation? Well, it can be. That's often how it's portrayed. Or is it, first of all, what I gain is so much more than what I give up. But beyond that, because these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, but beyond that, it's like just the act of choosing not to do something, like, like not to eat certain foods, makes them, it imbues those choices with meaning and makes those choices sacred. Yeah. Not, not sacred in the boring sense, but the most special, the most fun, the most erotic, the most pleasurable, the most meaningful. You know, Viktor Frankl wrote this book years ago called Man's Search for Meaning. Right. Uh, and he interviewed concentration camp survivors in the most dire circumstances circumstances. And he found that the ones who lived weren't necessarily the strongest or the healthiest. They were the ones who had the strongest sense of meaning and purpose. Like, I have to survive so that I can, you know, be reunited with my loved ones or bear witness, or whatever it happened to be, just like Anna's talking about. So when people enter our program, one of the first questions we ask them is, why do you want to live longer? And people go, oh, no one's ever asked me that before. Right. You know? Yeah, I think that, that uh, 
that goes directly to the crux of so much of what ails us as a society, yes. as a culture. Um, and systemically, we're not raised or taught to think in those terms. No, and I think just it's the opposite. led us to a, a grand crisis of consciousness it's that true. is really fueling this epidemic of depression and suicide. Yes. You can clean up your diet and eat a plant, you have the most pristine plant-based diet, and that will, I believe, catalyze other changes in your life. It will have this effect that will spill over into yes. hopefully leading you to a more purposeful direction in your life. But if you get stuck on the food and think that's gonna solve all your problems, you're missing the big picture. And I exactly. really, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I really think that that is, um, you know, more important than any of the, you know, epidemiological studies or meta-analyses. It's like, if you can't find purpose and fulfillment um, in your life, then Nothing else what, else, what else matters? Well, that's right? the point. And so much of what we see now is, you know, I, and, and I ask people in our studies, because we would live together for a month at a time in our earlier studies and, or, or meet regularly for years mm -hmm. at a time. I'd say, you know, teach me something. Why do you smoke? Why do you overeat? Why do you drink too much? Why do you abuse opioids? Why do you work too hard? Why do you play so many video games? These behavior, behaviors seem so maladaptive to me. They kind of look at me, they go, you don't get it, do you? <laughs> These behaviors aren't maladaptive. They're very adaptive because they help us deal with our pain, our loneliness, our depression. You know, there's been a radical disruption in our in our culture in the last 50 years with a with the disruption of the social networks that used to give people that sense of connection and community most people don't have a a neighborhood that feels you know with two or three generations of people or a, a job that feels secure where you've been there for 10 years or a um, you know an extended family you see regularly or a church or synagogue and what we're learning is that um, people say things like, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or, you know, well, and you just can build to, on that. to build on that is, uh, you know, not only why do you want to live longer, but the compass of that is self-reflection and self-awareness. And if we have that as much throughout the day so that we can connect the dots between what we're feeling, um, what we're thinking, and what we're doing, and then that feedback loop of how that makes us feel. So, you know, for somebody who's uh, crutching along with their 20 friends in their pack of cigarettes or the uh, video games or whatever it is, it's numbing them. And really the next level for them is like, that's just kind of my getting by mm -hmm. standpoint. But if you really look what's below the numbing, which is what's, you know, what's yeah. really where the, the locus of control is and where the transformation takes place really, is that um, if you can connect the dots that those things aren't actually moving the needle of you feeling any better right. or you growing in any way. And so the moment that you identify or that, you know, I identify, you know, what my kind of personal roadmap of meaning is, what are my values? Who are the people that I, I want to be spending my time with? How do we spend quality time? Well, I have to feel good in order to spend quality time with the people I love and to do things with them. So it, it comes from that place of, of self-awareness, because if you realize that underneath whatever numbing mechanism has allowed you to cope, that you're actually not feeling well enough to do the things that are most enlivening to you, then the way to repattern that is just a, it happens in, in the mind, which just really happens even deeper in the heart. 
So it, yeah, it's 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 uh it's difficult for people to grasp that though. It's a very ephemeral concept. Like if you tell somebody, look, you got to cut out the cheeseburgers or you got to quit smoking, like they can wrap their head around that. It's very tactile, um, uh, you know, tangible thing that they can execute on. But when you're like, look, you got to go on this inward journey, <laughs> you know, like, look, I'm just trying to, you know, get my get kids home day. from school and get yeah. through the get through the day. And yeah. you know, as somebody who's who's been in recovery for many years, you know, one of the things that you learn very early is that the drugs and the alcohol aren't the problem. They're the solution to the problem. You can take away the drugs and the alcohol, but then you got to deal with the underlying condition mm -hmm. that compelled you to numb yourself out right. in that way. So you could tell somebody you got to quit smoking, but yeah, the, that's their best friend that right. you're removing from them. And if that person doesn't have the support um, or the tools to then address the underlying condition that was driving them to um, you know, check out, That's in, right. whether it's a video game or your phone or gambling mm -hmm. or sex or whatever it is, mm -hmm. then that person is gonna lapse back into that behavior or they're going to be very unhappy. That's why we've learned it's not enough to give people information alone. If it were, nobody would smoke. It's not like I say. Um, yeah, it's not Rich, an intellectual way, thing. Uh, Rich, I want you to quit smoking. It's bad for you. You go, oh, I didn't know smoking is bad for you. Everybody knows it's bad for you. It's on every pack of cigarettes. You have to say, why do you smoke? And it's not enough to focus on the behavior. We need to work at, this, at a deeper level. And so in our program, we have support groups. And the support groups are not like helping people stay on the diet or exchanging recipes or types of running shoes. It's really creating a safe environment to replicate what people had when they grew up. You know, um, when you grow up in a, an extended family or a neighborhood with two or three generations of people, they know you. They don't just know your Facebook profile or your bio sketch or all your awards or whatever. They know where you messed up and, and you know that they know and they know that you know that they know. Mm -hmm. And there's just something profound. It's like in uh, James Cameron's uh, wonderful film, Avatar. It's like, I see you, you know, it's like, I don't just see you, which is really from an African proverb. It's not, I just see your bio sketch. I see where you messed up. And I'm still there for you. And there's something really primal about that need for really authentic intimacy. In fact, there was a study that came out a few months ago that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Why is that? Because it's not authentic. It's it's like it it's looks like everybody has this, it looks like everybody mm -hmm. has this perfect life, but you. You know, because people don't mm -hmm. post. Oh, my kids on drugs, or oh, I'm having problems in my marriage, or oh, yeah. whatever. But in our support groups, that's what we, we what people talk about. We we encourage people to say, "What are you really feeling? Express it as a feeling, because it's our feelings that connect us." And it's so easy to make fun of that. Oh, it sounds so touchy feely. It is touchy-feely. We are touchy-feely creatures. We're creatures of community. That's how we've survived as a species. And so for someone to say, gosh, you know, I may look like the perfect father, but my kid's on drugs or heroin or whatever. And someone else say, gosh, what am I feeling when I hear that? Oh, that sounds terrible. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, I used to have a drug problem, they might say, or gosh, my kid has another problem. It doesn't solve the issue, but it, suddenly you don't feel so isolated. And study after study has shown that People who are lonely and depressed are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from pretty much all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything, even diet that has that big an impact or smoking. And now they all interrelate because you're much more likely, as, as you both have said, to, to choose those behaviors, to numb it out, just to kind of deal with that pain. But if you numb out pain, you also numb out pleasure. So you kind of have this kind of gray life. And what, what, if, if people don't remember anything else about this wonderful uh, podcast that we're having today is to say that the point of our program is not to help people live longer. It's to live better, as Anne was saying, because 
you know, there's no point in giving up something that you enjoy unless you get something back that's better and quickly. Mm -hmm. And because Mm -hmm. these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you change your lifestyle, and ironically, it's sometimes easier to get people to make big changes all at once because when you make big changes in your lifestyle, you feel so much better so quickly. It reframes the reason for making those Mm -hmm. changes from fear of dying or fear of something bad happening or just numbing to get through the day to joy and pleasure and feeling good. And, you know, and it gets into a virtuous cycle where you start to feel better and better. All right, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that look in the rear view part two with a bunch more awesome excerpted conversations will be up later this week, Thursday night, December 27th. Uh, So Merry Christmas to those who celebrate that holiday. And a reminder that you can watch a version of this recap on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash rich roll. It's a little bit different because not all the guests were recorded on video. So it's it's a variation on this theme, but uh, I think you guys will enjoy it. Final reminder that our new gift cards for the Plant Power Meal Planner make a great stocking stuffer. So check those out at meals.richroll.com. And if you would like to support our work here on the show, there are a couple ways to do just that. You can tell your friends about the show, about your favorite episode. You can share the show on social media, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can support the show on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing the podcast, for editing it, for graphics, along with Jessica Miranda. Reese Robinson for some portraits along the way. Uh, and David Kahn for advertiser relationships, of course. Very important. And theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days as our recap of 2018 continues with the best of the RRP Part 2, 2018, Thursday night. Until then, peace, plants. Happy holidays. Namaste. Yeah.